the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are not talking about The Mandalorian, which airs on Friday as Disney hasn't allowed us to see it yet. Sadly, that is the way. However, fear not, because while we might not have a Mandalorian on this week's show, we do have a Russell Tovey, who dropped by to talk about ITV's The Sister, which we did get to see. And that's not all. We also got to see Nick Frost busting ghosts in Amazon's Truth Seekers and find out what Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman have been doing in Sky's The Undoing, which, among other things, features a surprising amount of full frontal nudity. So there's that to look forward to as well. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show I would like to point out that currently has one of my co-hosts watching The West Wing all the way through and another enjoying a rewatch of Battlestar Galactica. It's taken 109 episodes to achieve it, but I think I have finally managed to reshape both of them in my own image. And so, as she ploughs on through season one of Aaron Sorkin's masterpiece, asking the question that dogs all who first swim in those hallowed waters, why is Mandy? It's Terry White. How are you? Hello, James. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How is it going? We should wait. We'll get on to that. We'll get on to that. We will get on to that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let us instead... Welcome to us also Boyd, who is with us in body, if not in spirit, a very sleepy Boyd Hilton, who stayed up all night to watch the last presidential election. How did that compare to the West Wing, Boyd? Um, oh, no, we're not quite as good as the West Wing. It was uh, badly scripted, unconvincing, um, <laughs> cliche, unpredictable. The acting was terrible. The acting was yeah. absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, I don't know why I put myself through it, really. Yeah, it was. But, you know, I have to I just have to make sure I'm so terrified that somehow Biden's going to throw this whole thing away that I have to make sure whenever he does a big event that he kind of gets through it okay, he doesn't completely <laughs> screw it up and ruin everything and the election to Trump. So it's just that. And it was fine. It was absolutely fine. Um, yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners who love the, love it when we talk about Donald Trump, there's one in particular who obsessively tweets me every time we mention Trump going on about how we shouldn't care about him because he's the American president. It doesn't affect us. Yeah, right. It doesn't yeah. affect us. <laughs> it in no way affects the rest no. of the world that this maniac is in charge yeah. over there. No, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> well, also, you know, it's not like we've seen any impact of uh, Steve Bannon and the global uh, push for populism. No, is exactly. There? Talking of which, he's in my, um, in my What Have We Been Watching, Steve Bannon. Um, Why, was he on Bake Off? Yeah, he was on Bake Off. Um, <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh, my God. I mean, it's not beyond the realm no, of possibility. Sean Spicer yeah. was on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. So they're both on. Sean Spicer and um, Steve Bannon are on this show, The Trump Show, which is going on BBC Two. Oh, my God. On Thursday nights at nine o'clock. And um, the second episode just went out this week. And they've got all these people who are closely, intimately involved with Trump from um, his election onwards discussing his presidency and it's really interesting it's 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 one of those brilliantly done bbc documentaries it does that thing where all when they the interviewees settle down you know and get mic'd up they film it from that point so before they're ready to hold forth they're kind of already revealing what they're like so you know you see them in the, all the egomania it's really interesting um and they're quite unfiltered because because actually people like steve bannon ended up being got rid of you know even though he still supports trump so he's on it with his you know he wears two shirts he wears he wears two black shirts one over the other i'm talking long-sleeved dress shirts or whatever you want to call them he looks so weird and under that like a black t-shirt he dresses like a freak he, he does it from this room where his right-wing quasi-fascist tv channel airs and he's he's just genuinely insane it is a horror show if you can remind yourself of just the the, the nightmare of the whole 
Trump presidency. If you can cope with that, it's well worth watching. Um, I've kind of I've gone straight into it, haven't I, James? I realise you probably ruined. You probably had another script moment before um, we were going into what we've been watching. Apologies in advance. Uh, no, no, no. Carry on, boy. Just, just you, just rock on. Okay. And one other show. Have you heard of the show Grand Army? This is a Netflix thing that arrived a couple of weeks ago. It's again, it's another one of the Netflix shows they don't really have time, or I don't know, they just don't bother promoting particularly this is a teen drama high school drama sent a school in brooklyn called the grand army school and um it was controversial because it's created by um this playwright who is called um katie capiello she wrote a play called slut um a few years ago yes indeed and um which deals with kind of sexism and sexual assault in schools and stuff like that and it deals with big um interesting issues it's got a lot in common with like euphoria or 13 Reasons Why. Um, so they created this 10-part drama, which is, you know, a full-on, really well-made, beautifully filmed thing. And when they announced the date, the air date, when Netflix announced the air date of a couple of weeks ago, arrived on October the 16th, one of the writers tweeted about it, um, called Ming Pfeiffer, who was in the writer's room. And she tweeted saying that her and three writers of colour worked on the show quit due to, and I'm quoting her tweet, racist exploitation and abuse. And she had a real go at the showrunner. Um, and so there's this whole, yeah, controversial backstory. I just watched the show and it's really, it's really interesting. I'm a kind of an aficionado of teen dramas going back to skins, etc. And it's like, it is, it's got a lot in common with Euphoria particularly, but it's much less stylized. It's quite, it's kind of like more documentary style, handheld, but beautifully done, beautifully filmed, some incredible acting. And the first, the first scene of the first episode is um, two teenage girls, one of them trying to fish out a condom from the other's vagina. So it's full on. It does not mess about. Yes. See, and I particularly enjoyed the fact that Terry was not listening, was actually doing an email. Yeah. And then as soon as she heard Fisher condom out of someone's yeah. vagina, suddenly yeah. the email was abandoned. She was yeah. back in the show. Back in the room. Back in the room. Um, so it's full on. Um, the, the first episode also, there's a, bo a bomb goes off nearby. a few, And the whole school is kind of quarantined in the thing. So it's quite dramatic slash melodramatic. And yet done in such a naturalistic style kind of loose naturalistic style it's really interesting so i'm going to carry on watching it it's called grand army and it is on netflix i wanted to ask you about a show boyd mm. in a similar elk, yeah. i think which a lot of people have mentioned to me which is pen 15 yes so yes are you watching this i've watched i'm not i'm not up to date to the yeah the, the new series is on sky yeah i watched some of the first series yeah it's it's pretty good i think didn't, i think james mentioned it a couple of weeks ago i seem to remember <laughs> didn't you james or am i imagining doesn't it doesn't seem likely does it a, that oh. would be amazing because clearly then that's why i have no memory of us talking about it but yeah. it definitely doesn't seem like a james show oh i yeah i don't know why i think he mentioned it because i think he saw it on a on the list of stuff but yeah it did come out um, the second season did arrive a couple of weeks ago. Which again um, is it's and it's supposed school, to be really good. Yeah. yeah. Middle school, yeah. seventh grade girls dealing with yeah, all absolutely. of the weirdness yeah, yeah. about being a teenager. Yeah, it's like outcasts, thirteen-year-old outcasts yeah. in school. Yeah, um, I watched the—I literally watched the first episode when it went out on Sky, mm -hmm. and haven't gone back to it. But it's yeah, it's supposed to be really good. People are very keen on it. That's me. That's what I've been watching. <laughs> Terry, tell us how the West Wing's been going. I want to talk about a specific episode. Um, okay. which I watched in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep and um, ended up, instead of watching the election, I have to say the election debate because it seemed um, like the wrong decision to make in my current state of insomnia and fear about the American election. So instead I, I chose to retreat to the idealistic world 
where politicians have morals and empathy and sanity. And so I've watched episode 10 in Excelsior's Deo. So when I said on Twitter that I was starting to watch this, there were two kind of camps of people. There were people who were screaming CJ at me, and then there were people who were screaming Toby at me. And those first, you know, those first few episodes, he kind of had some choice moments, but I couldn't kind of see this real tribalistic devotion to Toby. Now, having seen In Excelsior's Deo, <laughs> I, I mean, is he married? Does he need another wife? Could I be it? Um, because obviously, if everyone remembers this, who has seen it, this is the episode, no spoilers, um, in case people are in the position I was in two weeks ago. But the whole setup is um, there's a kind of a homeless war veteran who dies wearing a coat that Toby gave to Goodwill. Um, it's all in the run up to Christmas, by the way. And I should say this is quite, um, could we say schmaltzy maybe? But I don't care. I need it like straight in my veins. And you kind of remember that the, there are people, I'm sure there must be people who still work in politics who have heart and conscience and all of those things. There's an amazing um, bit with Leo where they're trying to dig up, dig up dirt on some of his Republican kind of enemies via Sam's lady friend. And, mm. and there's just a line where Leo <laughs> goes, that's not what we do. And it's like, remember the days when that's not what we did? When you would draw oh, a God. line somewhere, anywhere, but especially... Somewhere like that. And it was that moment where you go, this whole episode is like, these are the good guys. These are the good guys. And these guys, they have the heart of the country at their kind of, that the best interests of the country and the heart and soul of the country are what they're fighting for every day. You have the CJ storyline um, with them fighting for the hate crime legislation after the murder of the... Um, young gay boy. I mean, the the whole thing was like a massive, stark, the starkest contrast yet in the West Wing, my experience so far, about the difference in this fictional world and what we're living through and what we have been living through for the last four years. Mm. So I'm both, you know still infatuated with the show and love it so much and it's also making me feel really panicked about what's going to happen in two weeks time and you know giving me hope that one day the corridors of the white house are going to look like this again not as they presumably do right now they won an Emmy for that that particular episode, which was uh, the first kind of Toby showcase episode. It also has that wonderful, uh, it has little drummer boy, doesn't it, at the end? The pa ra pa pom pom bit. It's just, oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful episode. <laughs> yes. Exactly like that. David Bowie, Bing Crosby and Terry White. You know, to the last. That's right. Oh, my Dig God. Let's do it. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a it's a marvelous episode. But uh, in the next one, have you seen the one no, after it yet? That was where I left it. Oh, you get to be introduced to Lord John Marbury. So you've got that too. That's a report back next week. Excellent, excellent. As Terry live watches the West Wing on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's actually I found it very heartening the amount of people on social media who have taken us up on this and are now watching the West Wing on all four like it seems to be there's a big old tide of wing nuts coming out of the woodwork uh, I've only had I think two people be like watched it didn't like yeah. it uh, to which I would mm. say 
you may it may grow on you press on uh, and if not you're a sociopath <laughs> uh, and that's really that's really the only two sides to that particular coin well it's funny right because most shows you can go totally get why it might not be for some people i completely see why this may be a matter of taste with this show this is one of the few shows i think ever where i cannot imagine anyone with humanity and love in their heart of which i'm not saying those people who don't like it don't have that but i can't imagine people not liking it do you know what i mean and, and i can't mm. say that i don't think for many other if not any other shows because even at the time it had loads and loads of republican fans it wasn't even like it was split along ideological grounds i think now in 2020 given how hyperpartisan things have become i can imagine american republicans being sort of viscerally repelled by the fact that it's a democratic administration but uh, but you know but even you know it, it's just it's just sort of smart right-minded people trying to do what's best and you might agree with them you might not they do it is clearly left-leaning but they do try and present in a couple of words even rob lowe he he presents a very you know compelling compelling case that Republicans have often used about taxation. And Ainsley Hayes, when she comes into it, she does the Republican side but as well. I, I think what's important, to your point, is they're Democrats, but they are not that left-leaning, let's be honest. You no, know, Bartlett, no, the, the, first, the pilot establishes that Bartlett is pro-life. He's Catholic, is Catholic yeah. Personally, that, but yes, doesn't believe but that, in legislating against women's rights views. Personally, yeah. he is, and that he holds yeah, he's fairly, a Catholic. you know, mm. and not necessarily conservative views, but religious views. And mm. it isn't a extreme left wing, you know, whatever the current language is around uh, the Democrats. It isn't that kind of administration. It is exactly what you're saying, which is it's a group of people whose job it is to try and run the country to the best of their ability. And the, the thread running through everything is that that comes before everything, including personal ideology. And that's what's mm. heartening to see in in a. And I'm not just talking about America. I'm talking about our own country as well. Um, that sense of that's their unifying, regardless of politics. And it isn't partisan because actually it's just everybody wanting to do what's right for the country that they love so much. Mm. And they don't. I think they they make a an effort not to paint Republicans as villainous characters generally. Don't get me wrong, there are a few, but there are some terrible Democrats in it as well. But uh, I think maybe some people don't like it because it is, I mean, it is smug, certainly, uh, and it can be a little bit schmaltzy, and it is very wordy. And I think if that kind of thing irks you, then maybe you won't love it. But as I said, see my previous comments about being a sociopath. <laughs> there are there are loads of people who think Aaron Sorkin, who just viscerally hate Aaron Sorkin and his That's, whole style, don't they? I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I'm not... I, so uh, there is a whole... You know, I've seen, I, I've seen, you know, not tweets to us, but people just going on about how, yeah, you know, how smug and self-satisfied. One of the criticisms I read, which I don't agree with, but which constantly made about him, is that everyone speaks like him. Everyone speaks in the same ultra-eloquent, snappy, smart way, which <laughs> there's some truth to. Mm. But I think, but I think CJ is notably different to, you know, yeah. Rob Lowe. It's, I think there are different. I think I don't. I, but that that is the thing that people say about him and his character. Funnily enough, like if you've ever interviewed Aaron Sorkin, he's not very articulate when you speak to him. Like he's Ooh. like, no, he's a beautiful <laughs> writer, but when he speaks verbally, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way saying. But he's he's very much he's um ah uh, ah uh, like he stutters. He doesn't have fluid speech, and he does not speak like his characters when you actually talk to him. That's the way he writes. It's very different oh, to the sure. way that he talks. Yeah, I meant, I meant, yeah, I meant. Yes, the way he has he a style yeah, certainly. And there's there's yeah. lots and lots of of YouTube videos about you know sorkinese and yeah. the gags and phrases and terminology that he just lifts and transplants from one thing to the next I don't, 
I but, do mind um, that. And I hate, like, I do kind of hate this, oh, too many words thing because I want, to, I don't want telly to always be a reflection of how I sound in real life. I don't need there to be the ums and the ahs and a naturalistic rhythm of speech that makes yeah. me feel like it's reality. That's not what I want from TV all the time. It's, it's what I want from certain types of TV. But when it's this, that's what I want. I want that snappy, fast, articulate, you know, hyper-intelligent, um, fast rhythm dialogue. That suits the show and it suits the premise and it suits the, it suits the world that I've walked into. Um, and I'm not, you know, and I don't think he always works in other places. But in this, I think it's, I think it's just perfect. Like, mm. and I think that's a really kind of, um, I think if that's all your complaint is really... Then, do you know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. oh, yeah. too many yeah, words in it, and, yeah. and they speak too well. Um, the other yeah. thing a couple of people have tweeted me is about how he writes women, which I haven't mm. really stumbled up against yet. I mean, CJ is 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 one yeah. of the best characters in it by a country mile, and she strikes me as incredibly um, authentic and real, and very much a woman who would exist in that world. That's how a woman who would be making her way in that world would be, I believe. But we'll see if that changes as it as it goes on. He's even kind of delicate with the call girl. I mean, even the, tri- the treatment mm. of her and making her a fully formed human being, not just a woman who happens to sell certain services, I think is a really interesting choice, so... Oh, I think I think the female characters in the West Wing are brilliant. I think uh, Donna, I think is great. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's I, I think that's more in other of, of his mm. stuff rather than the West Wing. He but gets yeah. criticism for it in the West Wing as well. I must Does admit, he? like I, mm. I kind of I get what some people say that he write doesn't write women as actual women, but I, I I must admit it's never been something that I have bumped on, and that's something I've certainly bumped on in other things. And I said like like I think Amy Gardner's a fantastic character in this. She should have been in it more. Ainsley Hayes. I mean. There are aspects of it that, because of when it was shot, the sexual politics are, you know, not not. I mean, it's not massively problematic, but there are certainly parts that Terry. I, mean, I have no doubt you will bump on as I do when I rewatch it now. You know, ooh dear, you wouldn't be saying that now. But, uh, but isn't there an argument of of a of a product of a a world and a time? So I always yeah, think yeah, they should reflect. I mean, can you imagine having to be a woman in that world and the masculine yeah, attributes right. you take yeah, on, yeah. which we see with Donna, right? The kind of uber competitiveness, yeah. the kind of slight aggression, the way, you know, CJ, the way that she um, operates sometimes with passivity and, and, and subservience with the VP um, to mm-hmm. basically to not get her own way, but to try and not make waves. I think those seem to me to be completely realistic ways that women operate in a male place and politics was then and is still now a, a, a predominantly male place. Mm. Um, so, and I think the sexual politics at that point would have, you know, had our eyebrows very much raised. And I think not reflecting that on screen probably bumps, I would bump up against that more than a realistic depiction. I mean, the first episode hinges around a mix-up with a pager. Like, yeah. they're like, what the fuck is a pager? <laughs> oh, the paging is weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, there's yeah. so much paging. And, and, yeah. and, and they're giant computer monitors. They're yeah. yeah. like, accidentally Ooh. mixing up yes. the pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's over right. And you know she's the high class <laughs> lady of the night because she even has a pager. <laughs> <laughs> we should also say that people have been pointing out the frustration that this is which we mentioned a while ago um with other shows that arrive on all four so you cannot access the west wing on the sky version of all four which is annoying why what's different about it it's just one of those things they do only not all of their i think 
I don't know. I think it might be a rights thing, or uh, so. And I think that I think Sky, you can still buy the full box set of the West Wing in Sky box set. So the HD, you know, for whatever sixty quid or whatever. Right there, you go. Um, so it means you know they're wanting to do that rather than for free access. Oh, it's because it's so also it's, available on Sky. I see. Yeah, so it's, I it's, see. It's complicated. Yeah, so you have to have the all four app on yeah. your TV. Most mm. TVs have the apps, and you can watch it via that or online. You can watch it on the website, but you know you can either avoid ads or pay a bit more to avoid well, the ads. Well, that's the thing. But- a lot of people have been moaning about the ads. You can pay four pounds a month to get rid of the all four ads, and I I would say like if you're going to binge the West Wing, I would do it for the duration of this because it's maddening. I think that's a really good deal. So we, I watch a lot of all four, mainly for Gogglebox and uh, things like that and Bake Off and, you know. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. Ads would really disrupt the narrative flow of Gogglebox, so you should, you're absolutely right. hours a day, but I tell you what they do, which is, sorry, this is really irrelevant, but it's a gripe, is they start half a second of the next, part of the show and then the ad cuts in so because it's super irritating it yeah. doesn't it's not like watching it on linear tv where it stops and then there's an advert it stops then it starts the next segment and then the ad comes in so it's frustrating oh, it's God. more frustrating than normal yeah. so i f- i found out it was only four pound a month from your tweet james dyer and i went home <laughs> last night and said to my uh baby daddy i was like we need to pay that four pound a month because I can't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Four plus, I believe it's called. And it's also you get more benefits. Oh. I mean, you're now turning into a salesman. I mean, for, for, <laughs> yes, for I'll take my commission on that. I don't know. Maybe they do send people around to your house to give you a massage. I have no idea. But for all like, the best of my knowledge, the four pounds maybe just gets rid of the adverts. But you get you are then part of four plus, Ooh. an exclusive club of no advert people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dickheads who can't just accept an advert in trade yes, for exactly free that. content. Entitled twats, yeah. that's what you are. Yeah. Of course, there were ads when it originally went out. Yes, I mean, there were. It was, a, it was primetime NBC. That's mm. what partly makes it so incredible, that this fucking wordy, hyper-intelligent thing was on primetime NBC and was their big hit show for years and years and years. And With also ads. worth noticing that all of these, because it was a network show, it is a four-act narrative structure, which yes. you do yes. not get on streaming yeah. and cable. Like, it's yeah. a fundamentally different way of telling a story and like you feel the ebbs and flows of those yeah. acts when you yeah. watch it. Better, better way of telling the story. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Boyd. Um, but it, yeah, even even with that in mind, I would still... But it is interesting you do now get the... Because I used to think this about Ali McBeal, right? So Ali McBeal was <laughs> yes. completely constructed around those ad breaks and it, and it always mm. had yeah. these pauses and these moments. And then when yeah. you watch it now, it kind of just blacks out and then comes back into being again. Um, yeah. But it is interesting. It's like a record, right? It's like listening to vinyl. Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's a mm. deliberate... Yeah. At time break in turning over the record, and we don't have that anymore. And he's, I remember, I remember Aaron Sorkin talking about he absolutely wrote to the ads, he yeah, absolutely did, he did that. Yeah, you know, as a, as a network writer, you do it yeah. in the same way as you were doing a play, you'd be writing yeah. for your particular, you know, act yeah. structure there. A lot of writers really like I remember Chris Chibnall talking about how much he enjoyed writing in Broadchurch. He wrote, a, a, he wrote every single segment up to the ads with a little semi cliffhanger. Yeah. Before it, which is when you watch it back, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, but West Wing does the same thing. There'll always be yeah. like an emotional high note or low note. There'll be something that keeps mm. you going through the adverts, and then picks up with a little twiddly bit of music from Snuffy Walden, and then you'll rejoin them. That's great. Well, we've talked about the West Wing for ages now. Again, as uh, as is our want now. Apologies to everyone or not. Uh, I have not been watching the West Wing this week. What have I been watching? I have finished the second season of Cobra Kai and I'm now desperately waiting for season three of that magnificent show. And it has to be said, the season two finale is 
insanity. <laughs> Absolute insanity. Uh, I highly recommend it. But what I also did with this week, when I was bereft and waiting for more Cobra Kai, was I started something that's been on my watch list for quite some time, and that is Counterpart. That was a star yeah. show with J.K. Simmons. So yeah, dis- I mentioned it. A while ago. Yeah, I know you've mentioned it, and someone, and I've been tweeting about it before as well, but I, it's been on my list for ages. Love J.K. Simmons, been wanting to watch it. And you remember when I started watching uh, Mr. Mercedes and I started watching Berlin Station because I was looking for something kind of meaty, and I watched mm. like maybe three or four of both of those, and neither one, like, they were good, they were fine, like, but they, I, I was a bit like, mm, and I never really continued with it because it just didn't draw me in. I watched one episode of Counterpart and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I must watch more of this. Um, and this is J.K. Simmons as Howard Silk, this kind of operative in a clandestine agency who becomes drawn into the fact that there's a parallel world and they all have partners and the parallel Howard Silk comes in. So you have two J.K. Simmons. You have this kind of nebbish suit office worker J.K. Simmons and then you have this badass otherworldly J.K. Simmons who kills people and doesn't give a shit. And he just seamlessly flips between like, you know, it's not even good and evil. It's just like badass versus really vanilla versions of himself. Olivia Williams is in it. Harry Lloyd who I just find delightful in everything. Uh, He's in this. Uh, The West Wing's Richard Schiff, Toby Ziegler is in this as well. Um, It's really, really good. It's really good. There are only two seasons of this. It was cancelled, but I think it has a proper ending at the end of season two, 10 episodes in each. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in for the long haul on this. I'm definitely going to watch, watch all of Counterpart. Highly recommended. Yeah, it's really good. J.K. Simmons is fucking brilliant. And um, uh, every night, Oz is being repeated again. We did all the Oh, Oz. yes. Yeah. It's on Sky Atlantic, like, most nights. Or, and I often accidentally, you just, Oz is so good that even just, you just glimpse it for about a minute and you want to carry on watching it. It's so compelling. It was so well done. And he is incredible in it as the neo-Nazi mm, prisoner. He really, really is. He really yeah. is. Um, I should mention that uh, it's available on Amazon. Yes. <laughs> if people want Amazon. to watch Counterpart uh, Stars, it's on Amazon. Okay, super. Right, shall we move on to this week's listener question, otherwise known as the opportunity for someone who listens to the podcast to hear Terry talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so, uh, this and one friends. and friends, yes, it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer and friends with a little bit of West Wing, even though we've already covered it because we've apparently seen no other shows. Um, this one comes from Richard Waller, and it wasn't until I actually had already kind of thought about this quite a bit I realised I don't know that he aimed this at me for Pilot, but more for Empire. I think he was talking more about films, but fuck it. Uh, I don't even know if Richard listens to this podcast. <laughs> we do this anyway. <laughs> so Richard Waller said, what film, but we're going to say show, characters would have been better slash worse with an actor who turned down the role slash missed out. Now, this really interested me because so many of the roles that we love and we know so well on TV are embodied so much mm. by the people that play them. And it's kind of hard to get your head around it when you think, oh my God, it could easily have been this person. And it would have been a completely different experience. Now, I'm going to kick this off by saying, because we've already talked about The West Wing so much, naturally my first book of call is The West Wing on this. I apologise for it. But some really interesting casting things in The West Wing. So when Richard Schiff, uh, when I interviewed him for my massive feature that you can find on the Empire website, empireonline.com slash west-wing. Um, <laughs> west-wing. Wing. Uh, next week on Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, thank you. God. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> you haven't called me a bell end in a while. I think you know people have missed that. Oh. It was the West Dash <laughs> that did it. It would have been fun without until that. Also, I mean, it's like being the in the 90, you know when the internet first existed, on people on TV would go www. <laughs> 
https slash slash colon like your mother <laughs> For the longest time, I used to capitalise the word internet. As well. I know you did, yes. <laughs> it's one of the first things I remember about you when I started working with you. And I thought, what is wrong with him? And why is he running the internet for us? <laughs> the interweb. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> as the kids call it. Oh. Anyway, as I was saying, when I spoke to Richard Schiff, he was saying that he came very close to losing out on that role to Eugene Levy who was going to be Ooh. playing Toby Ziegler. Can you imagine that? Wow. Yes. Yes. There we can. Excellent. <laughs> also, also, yes. another big if Alice and Janney, she was kind of, it was very close between her and CCH Pounder, which would have oh. been a very different show. CCH Pounder, of course, is fantastic in everything she's in. She's amazing in The Shield. But that would have been a very different thing. And they also approached Sidney Poitier to play Josiah Bartlett. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that would have been, been amazing. As good as, yeah. I mean, Martin Sheen is brilliant. But, he is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that would have, that yeah, would be amazing. Mm. Can we do? So, can we do that? Can we do a reboot West Wing with him, please? Yeah. No, no. One does not reboot a masterpiece, Terry. <laughs> one does not. One does not. <laughs> one does not does think. One. one does not think. Oh, I'll take this Van Gogh and just like redo it with finger paints. No, 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 well, no, no. Well, have you Terry. not seen no, no, modern no, no, no. art? Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. God, how did we get there? <laughs> I don't know. Anyone else, Terry? Any friends castings well, you want to throw out? There are a few friends castings and a Buffy casting I want to talk about. Oh, God. So um, three of the, I suppose, most talked about, almost missed out or turned down casting points um, in Friends were El- El- Ellen DeGeneres was apparently mm. in the running to play Phoebe Buffay, um, mm. which I cannot see at all. I swear to God. And I know acting is, is embodying somebody entirely different. <laughs> I understand the premise, but um, I can't see it because I think, and I know Phoebe, I, t- I talked about this the other week, has this like weird kind of slightly hard edge to it, which I do mm. think Ellen has as well before the whole drama um but i don't know she doesn't quite have that you know the 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 magic around phoebe is the kind of hippie um slightly ditzy at times uh believing in ghosts and reincarnation and um i don't know i don't think she has that element to phoebe and i think the wit would have come across very differently it would have been much more acerbic um the other one is john cryer to play Chandler, which I think would have been amazing, obviously, um, from pretty, well, I'm going to say from Pretty in Pink because I'm a nana, um, but <laughs> more recent people would say, what's it called, Boyd? Oh, um, that thing he did with yeah, Charlie Sheen. That. that thing. Yeah. But he's funny. Two and a half men. Three and a half men. Three and a half men. Yeah. Two, two, three and a half men. Is that <laughs> a sequel? <laughs> but, but Ducky. <laughs> <laughs> he would always be ducky and pretty and pink to me and he is very funny yeah. and I think he would have been um, brilliant. Vince Vaughn for Joey, which oh, God. I I think, you see, Joey was always kind of, I suppose, traditionally handsome, but was meant to be a bit of a, and we talked again, I talked about this the other week, how he became more of a buffoon and, and all of that. But I think... Vince Vaughn, whatever role he plays, he has this sharp edge charm and this kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not just thinking about swingers. Pretty much everything he's done, it's that kind of repartee and that. And he has a certain um, air of uh, intellect to him, which I don't think Joey Tribbiani has, has ever had. Um, and then obviously a conversation wouldn't be complete without mentioning Buffy. 
So Hang on, you haven't mentioned you haven't mentioned that Courtney Cox oh, was, was originally offered Rachel. Rachel. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. Right. Don't get me started on this. Well, actually, do because that's the point of the podcast. But, um, uh, I think Courtney Cox if, as Rachel would have been disastrous, and maybe that's yeah. because you know we know her as Monica, and she's perfect as she has Monica's sort of. Um, maternal nature and her neuroses and her obsessive but her physical like she is brilliant at physical comedy as well I was watching an episode the other day obviously because the day ended with a Y and it was the (laughs) one where it was the um, look at what their lives could have been had Rachel not left Barry and had Ross not um, found out Susan was a lesbian and in it um, if you remember Monica is still fat Monica um, she's still a virgin. She's waiting to lose it to her doctor boyfriend. Um, and she ends up losing it to Chandler, who's an assistant to Joey and Bright, and he's desperate to be published in a comic book. And her performance as Fat Monica is brilliant. <laughs> she has such a brilliant physical comedy. I love it. And I just think she, I, I just couldn't see her in that kind of, especially the more spoiled early iteration of Rachel. Um I just couldn't see it. And then she also does look a bit like David Schwimmer. So then you would have had David Schwimmer getting off with his own somebody who looked like him. (laughs) And I do know that there is an episode of Friends where we find out he did once kiss Monica when it was the the episode where they visited him at college and she was passed out on the bed um, and Ross thought he found Rachel under a pile of coats. It turns out Monica, big Monica, was the pile of coats. And she thought... That was her first kiss with um, Chandler, but actually it was her first kiss ever was with Ross. But that's a So many problematic things about that. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Because she goes, you were my midnight kisser. And he goes, you were my first kiss with Rachel. And she goes, and you were my first kiss ever. And then Chandler goes, what did I marry into? Yeah. Um, Yes. So, Buffy. (laughs) Um, Katie Holmes and Natasha Leon were meant to play Buffy at various points. Now, Katie Holmes, no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You are Joey Potter. You look dead sad. You can't choose between two boys. You have to work seven jobs because you come from a poor family and that's who you are. Let's just accept it. She does not have the edge for Buffy. But if we're talking about edge... Let us talk about Natasha Leon and how amazing <laughs> she would have been as Buffy. I mean, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar is perfection in so many ways, but I think she would have made it possibly a little bit more kind of edgy and weird um, than uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. You don't know, but I, I can mm. totally, totally see that. I would love to have seen that. Did you know that Katie Holmes came close to playing Piper Chapman on Orange is the New Black? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And and Selma Blair was the first choice for Joey on Dawson's Creek. I mean, that is an error. <laughs> well, thankfully it didn't happen, but yes. And and that is my list. Thank you. Boyd, are you going to or did you know, did you know the George Costanza? Yes. Yeah, okay, yes. go on then, I'll let you do that's that. That's what I'm doing, yeah. <laughs> I mean you do Buffy and Friends and I'll do Seinfeld. Yeah, that's it. yeah. I've got one one other that isn't either of those things. But yeah, George Costanza indeed um was going to be played by Chris Rock. Yeah. Um at one point. Um and Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito came really close, I think. Really? Closer than Chris Rock. Yeah. I think Danny DeVito was given that was offered the role. 
um, by Jerry Seinfeld and the producers and turned it down in the end. Um, I don't think he wanted to be committed to another long running um, <laughs> American primetime comedy series. Um, of course, in the end, he did get involved in a very long running American primetime comedy series. Um, but that would have been bizarre. Chris Rock, absolutely bizarre. Um, Danny DeVito can see more. But Jason Alexander says that what got him the role in the end in his um, audition was that he treated the whole thing like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. He basically did a Woody Allen impression. And that's how he got the role. And I've always, and the, the interesting thing with Seinfeld is, Obviously, Jerry is Jewish in the show and talks about it quite a lot, but George isn't. When I first started watching Seinfeld, I was absolutely like, it's just two Jewish guys holding forth yeah. in, in, in a diner, and that's the whole show. And then you kind of halfway through the nine seasons, you suddenly, it suddenly revealed that George isn't Jewish at all, and he's got some other weird religious um, background. Like, I think it's like Greek Orthodox or something. <laughs> um, so that is a major surprise, but essentially everyone's Jewish in that show. I mean, that that is, I think that's the reality of it. Um, but the other one I wanted to mention is David Tennant. You know this one? David Tennant was was talked about as being Hannibal in the TV what? series of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Brian Fuller had talks with him. He talked about, so David Tennant talked about in an interview a while ago um, saying that he met with Brian Fuller and Brian Fuller was really keen on him doing it. And obviously he went to Mads Mickelson, however you pronounce it in the end, who was brilliant at Hannibal. But slightly, like ha the casting of Mads Mickelson, it's just odd. You know, Hannibal was talking in this kind of like accent, you know, he's got a weird accent, a European accent. Um, so it would have, I, I can absolutely see David Tennant doing it, especially when you consider he has done. You know, having seen him doing Dez, for example, um, playing that and doing that incredibly still, um, matter-of-fact version of a serial killer, you could do absolutely see him now doing his version of Hannibal Lecter for sure. I think it would have been brilliant, I have to say. Mm. I would love to have seen it. And Terry was so fascinated by that, she was actually transcribing what you were saying <laughs> as you spoke. So clearly something that really resonated with her, so that's nice. <laughs> I was yeah. looking something up for the review yeah. section that I... Bash, 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 I was not, because I actually wasn't typing, I was moving my mouse. So see. No, you weren't. That's not true, because I, I can hear the keys. You can't hear the <laughs> it's descended into anarchy. Right, right, right. I'm going to leave this in. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> Here's what I was going to also say was uh, Rob Lowe apparently was in consideration to play McDreamy on Grey's Anatomy yeah. before Patrick Dempsey got totally. the role, which was quite nice. Yeah. I also heard that Bob Odenkirk very nearly played Michael Scott in the US office because Steve Carell had other commitments at one point and they weren't sure they could work the scheduling out. That would have been a very different show. Um, yeah, that would have been weird. And yeah. Matthew Broderick similarly was considered for Walter White at one point. Which would have made Breaking oh, yeah, Bad that's a very famous. That's a famous yeah. one. That would have been absolutely insane. Deranged. I'm sorry. Yeah, it really would. I mean, Matthew Broderick, very charming, lovely, but too charming, mm, I think, for that role. I think role. so. He doesn't have yeah, the edge. That, well, maybe, maybe no. he would surprise us. Yeah. Bear in mind, Ferris Bueller was a bellend. Terry pointed out the nature of acting earlier. <laughs> yes. yes. How could you adopt this completely different persona from your own? Yeah. Um, yeah. Elizabeth Olsen auditioned for Daenerys Targaryen on Game of Thrones, which would have been a different thing. But then, of course, she was. She was Tamsin Merchant in the pilot. Like, uh, uh, Emilia Clarke wasn't cast until they reshot it. But mm. I, think so, that's, uh, um, I think that's good, because like Emilia Clarke, she's got kind of a youthful... Um, innocence but with this like knowing mm, i could be yeah, evil at yeah, any yeah, yeah. moment edge <laughs> yes i could be evil at any moment in season eight it edge <laughs> yes uh, Jennifer Ailey nearly was uh, Catelyn Stark, nearly had Michelle Feli's role as well. I would say nearly, she yeah. literally did in the pilot and then they recast her. But uh, And Ewan Rian 
Uh, Ramsey Bolton read for Jon Snow, though didn't get the part. But that would obviously have been very different as well. I'm sure there are many, many more of these. But at some point, I actually have to edit this podcast, so I do need it to end. So let's move on. Thank you very much for that, Richard Waller, who may or may not actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> but uh, that was a helpful question. If you would like your question answered, feel free to hurl it in my general vicinity on Twitter at James C. Dyer or to the pilot at Pilot TV Pod Twitter account uh, via DM is probably the most useful way because I occasionally trawl through there as well. Time now for this week's guest. You all know who Russell Tovey is, the star of Being Human, The History Boys, Quantico, him and her, and so much more. He's back on our screens this week in Neil Cross's The Sister, which sees him as a happily married man with a dark secret, which one rainy evening comes back to haunt him. Uh, Russell beamed in over the magic of the internet to discuss the show and more with his celebrity friend, Mr. Boyd Hilton. Hello and welcome to Russell Tovey. Uh, friend of the Pilot TV podcast, because you were on our live show that we did last year, which was fabulous, and now you're back. Yes. Um, welcome, Russ. How's it going? Thank you very much, Boyd. Yeah, that was a London... Was, was it London Podcast Festival? Yeah. Or you were doing... Podcast Festival. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. Then we had a whole room full of people, which feels... I did a London Podcast Festival the other day with Talkart, and in a room that would have been 500 people, we had 40 people with masks on, but we were streaming it. So I think the... Magic now is that people all around the world to get the opportunity to watch it, but it was uh, it feels like a, a, a time that never really existed now, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Although, yeah, your your uh, your podcast is going from strength to strength, obviously, as is as is Pilot TV. Yes, totally. Your your Pilot TV is killing it, and Talk Art is you know <laughs> we're like going hand we're hand in hand. We're sisters, Pilot sisters. We are. We are. Anyway, we're here to talk about um, the sister. Yeah, um, talking of sisters, what a great, what a great Alan Partridge link that was. Um, which is your new drama series in which you and Bertie Carvel are kind of like the, the main characters. So I think you're probably the main main character. I'm saying um, Nathan, <laughs> yeah. who goes through has kind of goes through a kind of maelstrom of emotions throughout the whole thing. Um, mm. Basically, he's revisited, isn't he, by Bertie's character, Bob, and they've got this dark secret they share that no one else knows about, or they think no one else knows about, and it upends your life completely. When you got the script, it's written by Neil Cross of Luther fame. Were you a fan of Luther and of Neil's work, Russell? Were you excited yeah, about totally. the idea of getting a script f- uh, from him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, Luther's uh, uh, a huge kind of monolith of culture, like a monolith moment. It's an amazing production tonally. It's really unique in its pace, in its style. And Neil Cross has made an, an incredible name for himself. So when you get offered something written by him, then automatically there's uh, a, a, a te- like an interest. And the way that he writes dialogue is really... Uh, unique to him and the way that he crafts characters is so brilliant to act and it's just yeah tonally you get an opportunity as an actor to breathe which you don't really get in a lot of uh, TV shows it's all about um, you know keeping the pace going and stuff but this feels like you can really and especially if you're creating a thriller and a horror you have to have the moments where you are creating an atmosphere and letting being in the character's interior and that's what this show does yeah, it's definitely got a kind of moody, um, uh, creepy vibe, isn't it? The whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you're never quite yeah, sure scary. whether they might be. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, and it's that. And for you acting in it, you're with your character front and center, and dealing with huge amounts of things, trauma. Like he's worrying about that his life's going to be ruined. Um, yeah, and 
uh, he's married and he's dealing with all of that. What was that? Did you when you when in your first day in this role, for example, you do you immediately feel you've reached that level of intensity? Do you remember what your first scene was that you filmed and whether or not you because pretty much every scene you're in, you're intense in this in this series. Well, that's the thing is that this character is is he's trying to juggle so many things in a. Thank you, Steve. Just make me yeah some lunch. Um, oh. You're trying to juggle. Um, he's like Nathan is trying to juggle this life where he has one hand he has this this wife who doesn't know the truth about his past who he loves who he's trying to have kids with and keep normal and he just wants to be invisible and keep her happy his main drive in life is for Holly to be happy to give her love because she's lost her sister who she loved dearly and it's ruined her and her parents life and he wants to be someone who can facilitate her happiness on the other hand this guy comes into his life who's basically pandora who is trapped in the box and has opened the box so we start to show that the box has been opened and he is grappling with all of his might to put pandora in but in the middle is this guy who's just trying to maintain um serenity and calmness in this world of absolute anxiety and fear and pain and so that trying to juggle all that and it's set over three time periods as well trying to juggle this this character's journey over this course of time with all these emotions and everything he's saying isn't actually what he means was brilliant and hard. So hard. Yeah. It feels like it might be quite a technical job because, you know, as you say, you're playing in three different time periods. So you like, have to change your look and everything. You have to remember, you have to get, you're adjusting the character a bit. And also it's got this very intense mood you know which is maintaining kind of a level of isn't it of um mm. of intensity mm. i've used that word a lot but there is that, that is <laughs> yeah, the word for the show no it's good it's a great word <laughs> the intense sister uh i think the technical side of things absolutely but that's not my role i can only ever i've only ever been an instinctive actor so i can only ever go my instincts the technical stuff goes to sophie slotover as a hair and makeup who's extraordinary and Aidy morgan who sorted out all the costumes that that team and the crew that's their responsibility the technical side of it all i can do is try and navigate the emotional journey that these characters going on at every stage of his life and that was something that was fundamentally um important to me as an actor to tell the story neil cross said we did we did a um we did a webinar earlier today um about the show with with your 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 fellow cast members and neil cross the writer what are you having for lunch by the way you're having lunch um, while, while it, we speak, which is fine. I, 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 no, I'm going to stop. I just need to put a bit of no, pinot no, no. cheese in my mouth. Um, it's, an, it's an Indian, obviously, with a oh. pinot cheese. Excellent. Which Excellent. is, uh, I don't know if, how many people have Indian for lunch, but we've gone for it. It's quite rare, actually. Yeah, dinner. Indian dinner for me, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. Indian for lunch. You're pushing, like, you're pushing back the boundaries, as ever. We're breaking all the rules. We break all the rules here. We do. You do. Um, but Neil Cross was saying that this is the character that's most like him in anything he's ever written, your character, um, of Nathan. Yeah. Did you talk to him about that? And did you kind of, you know, try and get get more out of him about that? Well, yeah, he did say to me when he got it, this is like autobiographical, which when you realise what the story is about, troubled me. Because I was like, well, I did, yeah. so what part is autobiographical then, Neil? The, what, the fact that there's a, a, a girl that's been, you know, missing and maybe dead and buried in the woods. What is it, so what have you got to do with that, Neil? But I think he meant like the anxiety that youth that you have in your kind of adolescence going forwards where 
you know, I think Nathan's an anxious character that if he was at a party and he said something trying to be funny, but it came across as offensive, he'd worry about it for days afterwards. He's that sort of nice person that is really has his empathy. And I think Neil's trying to channel through Nathan this fact that this is a really decent person that's done something uh, bad, but good people can do bad things without realising, without in the moment when decisions are made and I think that's what he's the autobiography so I guess something's happened to Neil in his youth that he's not offered up to me as information but he wants me to feel like that that good people can fuck up yeah absolutely yeah did you he's he's adapted from his own book burial did you read the book as well did you get more of yeah I didn't didn't read the book because the script the script came through and I wanted to stick to the script because the character Nathan is very different in the book my parents both read it um and they loved it and then uh my boyfriend read it and um that would they they told me all about it uh i probably i might go back and read it now after it's come out but yeah. all i want there was such limited time between the script and filming that i wanted to just and there's so much to do that i just wanted to stay in the script zone because yes they come from it does come from the book but they exist in two different worlds they're very different energy um i, I, the, I have to ask you about the um the night shoots which i mentioned um in in the in the thing we did before, but was there any? Yeah. Did you manage? Was that was that as grueling as you as it as it looks? Because basically, there's lo- quite a lot of scenes where you and Bertie Carville are in what looks like a forest somewhere in the cold yeah. at night, in the rain as well, um, having to dig up. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of digging. Basically, how digging, was that for digging, you? Digging, burying, running around. There yeah. were a lot, and it was night shoots, and it was freezing cold in November. But you know, for my career, I feel like I've been inundated with playing roles that end up running around in woods in the night freezing cold when I was George and being human I was constantly all the other be tucked up in bed and I'll be on the night shoot running around naked covered in like antlers and blood um and so this felt like a hark back to that moment and feels like you know no one ever wants to shoot me in the summer uh in a nice park uh during the day it always has to be in the woods at night but it was <laughs> It was. Did you have any? Did you have any daytime park scenes in Looking? Surely must have. Oh, a lot. I mean, a lot of Looking. It's like lovely warm weather. Like gentle strolls, coffee in your hand, little chit chat. Yeah, right. And like you know, a shag. That felt like (laughs) Looking, but this this (laughs) felt like this is a world. Yeah, yeah. This is a world where things. You know, the nighttime is can be scary. The nighttime is a great place to um, navigate and explore for them emotions because you can trick yourself and they can light it beautifully and they can build the ambiance which you know in the daytime wouldn't be as scary that's why horrors and thrillers are always set at night mm. bertie carvel who's your who, who's plays m- most of his scenes perhaps oh. if not all his scenes along alongside you said um yeah. that he watched the whole thing back um, all four episodes just just the other mm. night, and was like really pleased. That, do you watch yourself back? Do you do you do you like to study yourself when you're in a show like this and see and kind of see There's what it's like things, after you know uh, a long time after you film? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, my process on set is that I love playback. So if there's a scene, I like to watch stuff back. Not everything, but um, most things to see what it looks like to feel like I'm happy with what I've done, um, and I'm I'm assured that. It works in the, you know, when you pan out of the whole thing and the whole journey of the character. And I and I watch the show when it goes out. There's a few things that I've watched back years later, like the other day, the start of lockdown, I watched The History Boys 
the movie. Mm. And I hadn't seen mm. that since we went to the premiere of it with Prince Charles, the Royal premiere at the Odin Square, Prince Charles and Camilla. And I saw it that night on the big screen. And I hadn't seen it since. And in my head, it was something else. And when I watched it, apart from literally crying throughout with nostalgia and remembering <laughs> all the moments and having flashbacks, I got so much more of it than I did when I was actually doing it. And I realized that through life experience, through like, you know, uh, romance, pain, love, which is basically the fundamentals of this movie, longing and everything, I got it. And I was like, oh, that's what that means. Oh, I know that feeling. And it was really, it's a really brilliant movie. And in my head, it mm. was something else suddenly. Because, yeah. And that, 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 so that was really lovely. But you hear stories of people like not watching anything. Like apparently Derek Jacobi didn't watch I, Claudius until about two years ago. And that was yeah. made in like 1961 or something, wasn't it? So <laughs> 70, 70, oh, 75, okay. 76. It was made yeah, in like yeah. 1812, wasn't it? So it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, Sometimes, yeah, but I watch stuff when it goes out. And there's other things that I'm really, I'm able to watch subjectively, even though I'm in it, and watch it as a fan. So I was able to watch years and years as a fan of the show and loving what yeah. everyone was doing in there. And I was able to watch Looking as a fan of the show. Like I was obsessed with Looking. If I wasn't in Looking, I would have been watching every single episode right. and following right. everyone on Instagram, even though that's pre-sort of Instagram. With a show like that, I mean... It, it, that that's a show that could come back, couldn't it? Like you know, that's a show you could do a revival in, like you know, five, ten years after please, the thing. Do you please, ever think about that? Joyce. Yes, I always think about that. It was such a brilliant job. I loved Andrew Haig. I loved Michael Land, the writer. I loved all the cast. Jonathan Groff is like heaven. Um, Raul Castillo. I thought Lauren Weedman's just like a genius. Lauren Weedman should be the biggest star in the world right now. Who played Doris, the best friend? Oh, brilliant! The fact that nobody knows who she is, I find like almost offensive because I think she's just a total genius. So I would love to do that again. It was a joyous show and we could improvise and I loved playing Kevin. I loved how cocksure he was and then also how fucked up he was. I loved like accessing that. So yeah, that, if there's a show that could come back, please bring Looking Back. And um, I, from memory, I, I remember when you when you finished filming um, this show, The Sister, as yeah. it's now called, yeah. Um, yeah. Didn't wasn't you then supposed to go off to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on I did stage in New York? And you did, yeah, yeah I, didn't I went, you? you went off I went to New York and, and we did right. five weeks rehearsals, eight previews, and then one of our ushers tested positive. We were like ground zero for COVID on Broadway, the first first theatre where someone got it. Day after, all shut down, flew home. Stuff of legends. Over. That's it. It's done. I mean, that's heartbreaking, is it? Or do you as an actor? I mean, I guess there must be lots of times where either, I don't know, you haven't got a role that you audition for or a project doesn't just doesn't happen in the end. But that having got that far with this production of such a classic play, and who else was mm. in the cast? You had an amazing cast in the Laurie Metcalf, Rupert right. Everett and Patsy Ferran. I mean, it was Rupert a genius. Ever and Joe Mantello has just got Boys in the Band. Yes. on Netflix. He directed yes. and I adore him. But you know what? At the time, it felt like, I mean, I came back in the days for three weeks and thought, oh, what could have been? Because we hadn't even opened. But at the time, it felt like the pandemic was such a such a weird thing that was descending the globe that when we were on stage playing a director's notes, it all felt superfluous. It all felt like there's something bigger out there. Why are we all pretending this is okay? Mm. And then, so when it closed, and it's like, the borders are going to close in New York. You need to get home. And they're like, well, you might want to stay because you might not be able to get back. And I was like, well, if we don't, can't get back, then the Broadway's not going to happen because it's all tourism. How are you going to get people there? So you sort of felt like... There's something a lot bigger in the world than us doing this play right now. 
So now I feel sad. Now if they try to revive it, I'd love, I'd be loved to have them conversations because it was a phenomenal. It was like the reaction we got from the previews was just beautiful. Wow. Um, but, you know, you just got to think this bigger. The world is a completely different place now. And who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? I mean, but, but yeah. in six months' time, maybe, you know, if say, if. Yeah, totally. It, if so, you know, you, you could do that production again, if hopefully. Yeah, if, yeah. I think they've kept yeah. the set. So, right, yeah. right. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, what you've been, about your lockdown. Um, mm-hmm. you've, you've carried on doing your podcast, your talk mm-hmm. about podcast, which is the game. Who's been your favorite guest of this latest run of podcasts? It's really interesting that we had so many amazing guests. We've had people like Elton John and Billy Porter and Rufus Wainwright, like icons of of music and and like social um, stars. It was a really interesting people we talked to. We had there's one of the world's biggest theatre critics is Jerry Saltz, who's really important. So for him to come on our podcast and sort of endorse us with his um, interview was a really defining moment. And then we had. Uh, Kenny Schachter, who is basically like, I guess, a gossip columnist, but not a gossip columnist because he's telling the truth. He tells it how he is. And he's really um, honest and to the point of getting himself into lawsuits with people. Him endorsing was an incredible thing. But then there's this other gallerist called Jennifer Gilbert, who represents um, self-taught, disabled uh, folk artists, outsider artists, and she's a big champion for the voice of these people. And her interview was so special and so enigmatic, and it broke through so many things that it sort of changed her life because so many people have come to her unbeknownst to what she was doing since listening to Talk Art. So that feels so special that we have facilitated an opportunity for someone who's incredibly important and changing the game and supporting so many people to have a platform. So them ones are really, really mm. special and they came out of. But then, you know, we've had incredible guests on there. Um, like, you can, like, dreamy guests in, like, art world, like, superstars and emerging artists and gallerists and curators and everything. And it just feels like it's a never-ending uh, ride that we're on that's beautiful. Yeah. Incredible. That Jerry Seltz is amazing on Twitter as well, isn't he? He's, he's yeah. like waging a one-man campaign against Donald against Trump. Against Trump. Yeah. I know, totally. It's, it's amazing. Totally, yeah. And what about stuff you've been watching? Like I interviewed an actor the other day and he told me he'd watched 140 films during lockdown. Um, he'd counted. Who was that? It was Kingsley Benadir. You know Kingsley Benadir? Wow, from, yeah. yeah. From the OA and, uh, and, and yeah. You stuff, love the Fidelity. OA. You're, you're gutted about the OA, uh, The OA, you? of course. The, it's all about the OA. Yeah, which, of yeah. course... Um, your mate directed some episodes of it, yeah. Um, Andrew Haight. Did he? Yes. Didn't you know that? Absolutely. Andrew no. Haight directed two or maybe three episodes of season two, yeah. And they are brilliant. Well, they're, they're, abs- like they're beautiful. They? Mm. They're beautiful. And they let him do it in his own... Like He, he has a different aspect oh, ratio wow. to the rest of it. Oh, my God. Yeah, he has his own visual look and feel to oh, it. Yeah. wow. They're brilliant. Yeah, you should, yeah, oh, you should definitely... Oh, yeah, but so what that. have you been watching? Yeah, he's a genius. Yeah. What have I been watching? You know, I've been catching up on lots of things like Dr. Foster, I've rediscovered. Right. And, you know, Bertie Carvel, who's yeah. in the sister, obviously. And then uh, all the shows that came out, like the ones that kind of defined, you know, we're going to look back and normal people is going to define the British, the lockdown. Yeah. That was the show that sort of came out. Watched I Hate Susie. I've been, I watched uh, Boys in the Band, which is great. Then watching loads of documentaries, but a lot of the time it's been researching artists and documentaries 
or mm. talk art because that has been you know creatively not been able to act is where I've been able to channel creativity and do all the research with you know who we're having on and that's been amazing but we've been yeah I've been watching loads of shows what else have I been watching that's just what, what what have you been watching? What's, what else is sort of come um, out? Well, been, I May Destroy You. Oh, you end up just, you watch it. Yeah. Oh, of course. course. Yeah, I May yeah. Destroy You. It was like normal people and I May Destroy You, weren't they? Were like the two. I May Destroy You, yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race Canada, obsessed. <laughs> uh, done all of that. Yeah. Uh, apparently there's a, there's a UK drag race, um, God Shave the Queens, I think they're going to call it. Maybe not. But that's wow. coming out soon on iPlayer, which I can't wait to see. There's, so, I oscillate. The drag race franchise is expanding an oh my god! Well, there's, there's RuPaul Holland, which I haven't jumped into yet. I'm saving that for uh, a rainy day when everything's a bit depressing. In the world, I'll start watching that. Yeah, it's but not depressing enough at the moment. It's not. Yeah. There's other things to watch still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, not saying that, yeah, because that really cheers you up. It really is. Yeah. I find Drag Race for me just makes is my happy place. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you also um, finally. I know you've been work, writing stuff yourself, writing. Mm. Products? How uh, any development there? How are they going? And you know, we're we going to well, see. Well, I had a short. Yeah, I had a short story published in yes. a short story anthology called A Short Affair, uh, which was amazing, and it was illustrated by Tracy Emin, which was magic. And then Talk Art has got a book deal, so we've been writing essays during lockdown, and that's coming wow. out spring next year, which is like a a guide to the art world, a Talk Art guide to the art world, which is really exciting. I've got. Uh, three TV shows in development I've been doing I've got only three only book. three TV shows only three. just three just three just the yeah. basic three yeah. uh, a, uh, a kids um, book uh, a documentary on an artist I'm I'm uh, I've currently like in the process of um, in development so I felt really fertile uh, in this time I haven't I think and I think that's what I think that's what artists do is that this period of time has really just shown everyone that artists adapt and continue. We don't sit around and wait for it to blow over and go back to how things were before. We're always constantly striving to adapt and, and change with the moment and continue telling stories. Well, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see all three of the projects, read the books. Yeah. And yes, uh, well, you're, you're more. sharing them all. Yes, yeah, yeah I hope so. Yeah, and congratulations yeah. on the sister, which is a, which is a, I think you're fantastic. Yeah, it's it's, it's brilliant oh, to see, obviously. Thanks, for Thanks Thank Russell. you very much. Thank you. That was Russell Tovey, and time now for this week's news. And I think we should begin news now with a moment of silence for the untimely demise of Queeby. <laughs> Queeby, that incredibly well-conceived idea that was in no way flawed, was laid to rest this week after a short but important life. Um, yeah, they, they they pulled the plug. I mean, no one could have seen this coming, surely. Um, but it feels like one of these things. Queeby, Queeby was damned, I think, from the outset, mainly for being a dreadful idea. But also, even if it could have worked, I think, obviously, Corona was slightly problematic there. If you have a platform designed exclusively around commuting and then there's no commuting, that's tricky. But what I found really strange about that was Jeffrey Katzenberg refused to back down from that model. Like, he was very much like, no, we are sticking to the mobile-only model. And they only very recently, they've actually launched TV apps so you can watch them on your screens at home. Like They resisted doing that for so long. And obviously now... It's too late. But I think you could argue that Coronas gave them a benefit in terms of people were watching loads of shit. What they, whatever they were watching it on, TV consumption has increased. Uh, and I've seen a few people go, oh, it was Corona. And I just think that's utter horseshit because I think 
mean, so that's what you really think, Terry. I mean, I will say I have no knowledge, obviously, of what actually happened. But, but, but when I accidentally still subscribed from when we, it turned out the other day. Um, of course you did. From when we watched something to talk about on this show. Yeah. And I never, ever, even when I realised I was still subscribing, I thought about, and there were a couple of shows on there that sounded amazing, but I couldn't get over the thing of I hate watching it on my phone and I refuse mm. to do it and I hate the short form insistence. So I, even though I had it and I paid for it, I found the prospect of watching it so kind of unsat- dissatisfying that I just didn't do it. And the fundamental truth is however much money you spend on the best filmmakers in the world telling the best stories in the world... A lot of people that I know, and we've heard this from our audience and from Empire readers, is they could not get over the phone thing and the kind of insistence on that when people are watching stuff at home, invest a big a lot of money in their screens, want to flip between an hour's episode on this and an hour episode on another app, not have to like turn off their telly and look at their phone to be able to consume this stuff by these great people. It's such a mismatch of platform Mm. and content. I can't believe it. And now I'm thinking, oh God, I really hope they managed to put these shows somewhere else where I can watch them properly. Well, and I think that's weirdly the upside of this because they absolutely can. Because Queeby is unusual in that it owns absolutely none of its content. So it paid, I think, over $100,000 a minute for its stuff. But it holds seven-year licenses for the shows it has. But the content owners who created it have the right to reassemble and show their shows elsewhere after two years. So in a couple of years, you might find Rachel Brosnahan's golden arm turning up (laughs) in other places. So we can look forward to that. Yeah, the Rachel Brosnahan's golden arm, which is the one I reviewed when we when we did our Queeby, I will never recover from it. I mean, it has to be, it has, it has to be seen to be believed. I think that the, 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 um, the lockdown thing was because they, because of, because of commuting, wasn't it? They, they mm. built the whole thing around the idea of watching it on your commute. Yeah. But I mean, as, as Terry says, I think, I think just the whole idea of being told on what device to watch a show. Yeah feels intrinsically wrong. You are not boss of us. <laughs> yeah, it feels like you're being exactly. So, you know, because I think we all, we've all watched stuff on the commute that you're kind of catching up. You know, mm. you can get a Netflix show on, you can download it to your iPhone or whatever. I've done that a lot. But generally, I'm like watching it mainly on my TV mm. and then, you know, if I need to catch it. That, just to have that choice made for you, it's just odd, really odd. And, I mean, someone someone quipped on uh, Twitter, but I think it's totally true. I'd love to see the Netflix Netflix drama about the whole creation yeah. of Queen. Yes, you know, it, and I, I bet it will happen. Queen King. Yeah, it's got to be. There's got to be a book in it. I'm sure someone's writing a book about it because it's got all of these great legendary people mm. involved. Um, and how they ended up doing it and spending so much money on it. And, oh my God, I'm just upset we will never get to see Terry trying to watch that Steven Spielberg horror show under her duvet. Like, but, was... <laughs> but it's even like, okay, like what we're saying about commuting. Think about some of the biggest cities in the world. Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles, which you would presume the people <laughs> of Los Angeles may be a prime target for this kind of thing. The people yeah. who make the shows live in Los Angeles. Their commute means driving in a car mm. usually for an hour or two mm. hours, um, if anyone knows LA. When are you watching <laughs> Queeby? What are you meant to do? Like pull over into a, a like under a hedge and sit and watch it on your phone? <laughs> like it, like there are, it depends on a very urban yeah. model of commuting. A lot of people in this country outside of the major cities drive to work. Every, I just think it's fundamentally 
flawed. And as Boyd says, you know, when we have a choice of how we watch what we want, the definition in which we watch it, the size of screen on what we watch it on, like that is a choice for us to make and to be told if, and especially I hate watching anything on my phone anyway, unless Boyd says I'm catching up on summit and I'm, you know, I have to, but yeah. just bonk what us and all that money, all that money. Apparently they had 500,000 subscribers. Was uh, was what they had when you know, the axe fell. I, I, I can only I think that assume, was at yes. its peak. Yeah. I think that was peak. I think oh, really? in the end they had like, mm. yeah, I think it was like tens of thousands. Yeah. Oh, well, it was, never mind. Yeah. Queeby, we hardly knew you. And that was probably for the best. <laughs> right, moving on. Speaking of things which uh, haven't weirdly been axed, Miracle Workers is coming back for a third season. How the fuck that's happening, I really don't know. But that's uh, <laughs> carrying on, a show that we really did not enjoy. Sorry, Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, Star Trek Discovery has been renewed for a fourth season. Yes! Yeah. With Alex Kurtzman and Michelle Paradise continuing as showrunners. Terry will be very excited about that. And guess what else has been renewed? We Somebody tagged us in this today, James, knowing did how they? delighted you would be. Season three, yeah. Stath, what's Oh, God. Isn't it yes. Stath? I'm pretty yes. sure it's Stath. Yeah. Although, I'll be honest with you, I would absolutely watch The Stath, Let's Flats. <laughs> that is a show I am 100% here for. If anyone's listening wants to develop that, do okay, it. Okay, I'm with you. The Stath, Let's Flats. Stath, Let's Flats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. It's great news about Stath, Stath, Let's Flats. Yeah. Um, uh, it was great, and you need to get on board with it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I mean, look, maybe. I watched the first episode of, of Series 2 when I mistakenly reviewed it in a week that I wasn't supposed to watch it. And I remember watching it. I was I was on the, I was on the Isle of Wight, sitting in an armchair in the room of a B&B, watching Stathlet's Flats on my phone. Oh, wow. Uh, the, way, uh. the way the creator intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. Um, that was funny, that yes. thing. Thank you. Uh, what else is happening in the world? Oh, Netflix have been swinging their broadsword yet again. Uh, Hilary Swank will not be getting her ass to Mars in uh, season two of Away because it has been killed. I mean, I don't want to bang. I don't want to sound like a, a, a broken record, but th- how much money must they have spent on that first season of Away? It's lavish, like space yeah. stuff, and uh, you know I mean, they went to I Mars. Mean, they went to fucking Mars, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, really expensive, and then just go. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. One season, it's over. Yeah. Oh, dear. Wow. But it was dull, though, so fair enough. Um, it was. The it Servant was dull. has been dated. Yes. Um, yes. Which servant. is most exciting email we received this week, uh, January 2021. January the 15th, 2021. It is back. Yes. Balloons <laughs> and splinters ahoy. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. No news on sea, well. though, sadly. Unfortunately, we'll no. all have to continue waiting for, for that one. Yeah, Apple TV Plus got their priorities right. Yeah. No. No, they don't. Boy. Servant first. No, they don't. Then we'll see about C later. Yeah. Um, and Euphoria is coming back for two special episodes in December. You see this? So, um, quite it's quite unusual and weird. So, they, I think filming was interrupted on season two because of because of COVID. Mm. But um, they've got enough to, and they're putting out two episodes first. So I don't know whether they'll be. They're calling them two special episodes. So. I don't know whether they'll just be a continuation of the last series or completely outside the timeline and then the full series will arrive next year. But I think it's very interesting and exciting. And Sky Atlantic's going to confirm they'll be on here the day after they go out or even like late, later that night um, when they go out in the States on HBO 
they'll be going out here. Nice. Um, but Euphoria was fucking brilliant, mm. so I'm excited about that. Uh, what else has happened? There were a couple of Falcon and Winter Soldier announcements. They've announced that some early MCU characters will be appearing yeah. in Falcon and Winter Soldier. I don't know quite who that is referring to. There has been some speculation, but we shall see. There was also a potential spoiler that I will not reveal that uh, talking about the identity of the new Captain America in Falcon and Winter Soldier, which has come about because there was a leaked toy image. Um, but if you want to find that, it's on the internet somewhere. I will not reveal it <laughs> here. What else has happened? Oh, Dominic West in the crown. What do you think of that? Oh, who is yeah, he going to play? I mean, Prince Charles. Prince Charles. Dominic West. Not, not confirmed. Yeah. He's still in negotiations. But he's in final negotiations to but make Prince Charles he, in season five and six. He will, because whenever these stories come out, they always end up being the actual actor playing the part. So, I mean, I presume that'll yeah. get confirmed, you know, some, if there was a need for a positive news story. Um, that may be right now. But um, uh, yeah. yeah, I can see him as Prince Charles. Yeah. He's very posh, yeah. Dominic he, West. Like I think Josh O'Connor was just yeah, no brilliant. perfect on that. So I'll be really interested to see that. Uh, Boyd, you say that uh, casting rumours are always confirmed, except apparently when it's She-Hulk, because Tatiana Maslany has basically <laughs> said that isn't a thing. Oh. I don't know whether it is a thing, but she's not oh. allowed to say it's a thing, or this is misdirection, or maybe she is not She-Hulk, but she I has said... You can say it's not a thing if it is And it actually be a thing. <laughs> no. Hey, but stranger things have happened, you know. Who was Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness? You know, <laughs> misdirection is a thing they use, but I don't know. She said it. Oh, and her yeah. quote was, this actually isn't a real thing. And it's like a press release that's gotten out of hand. So, But a press release is a fact. Yeah. Well, yeah, but then she said, and then she goes and say, it's totally not. I've been connected to these things in the past and the press has gotten onto it, but it's not actually a thing, unfortunately. Oh. So it sounds like either it's really genuinely not a thing or it's just not a thing she's allowed to talk about. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Wow. Uh, did you see the pictures from Stranger Things Season 4, which showed that Sadie Sink and Maya Hawke will be returning for that one, which is quite nice. Good to see those characters returning. Uh, Terry, were you excited to hear that Flashdance is getting a TV series reboot? Uh, I am very excited. Well, Dubai Day, Dancing <laughs> by Night, Home's a Massive Dog. Like, I, do you know what, though? When I've watched that film back, you know in the film she's meant to be 17? Is she? Yeah. Wow. No. Yeah. And obviously that goes wow. a lot. I, classic like things. No, not that's really, creepy. Uh, yeah. Not really being okay. Um, <laughs> 20 years on, 30 years on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Flashdance is coming to TV, which is obviously what we've all been crying out for. Similarly, Smokey and the Bandit is getting a series from David Gordon Green, Danny McBride and uh, Seth MacFarlane. So sure, why not? Uh, that's like one of those products. It's like it feels like so obvious that they, they're all doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like every, there's nothing surprising about that project, is there? No. The people involved, the fact that it's smoking the yep. band, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the fact that Tim Thingy is doing a new film version of the Adams Family. Love Tim Thingy. You know what I mean, <laughs> <sighs> yeah, Tim Thingy. It's all about Tim Thingy. <laughs> Anything else for news? That's Terry's checked out. Reviews. She's looking at her phone. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. Time to move on. This week's reviews then. And first up this week, we have The Sister. Uh, as you've already heard, this is a mini-series adapted by Luther creator Neil Cross from his novel. And it sees Russell Tovey forced to face up to the bodies he's buried in the past, quite literally in this case. Uh, Terry, is The Sister doing it for you? Oh, very good. Very, <laughs> very, very, very good. Um, okay, so so this is a, I'm going to say it's a weird one. Um, 
as you say, it stars our most beloved Russell Tovey, um, who, you know, we adore. And we've just heard Boyd interview him. He's a phenomenal actor. We could not be more in love with Russell Tovey. There's a butt coming. However, um, and I read a really interesting interview with him where he said he kind of saw this as one of the most challenging things um, he's ever done in his career. I don't see it as necessarily one of his greatest performances. Let's just say that. So this is a four-parter. It's over four consecutive nights on ITV. It's created by um, Neil Cross, who um, is of looser fame. And it was based on an original um, book called Burial. Um, And basically, as the title sort of gives it away, everything about this drama, thriller, supernatural, whatever it is, is really laid out there at the beginning. Um, so you have Russell Tovey. Um, it's it takes place in two time frames. Well, three kind of. So um, back a decade ago, when something dead bad happening, the night of that dead bad thing happening, current day, and then a few years after the dead bad thing happened. So I think seven years ago, where um, he first meets his wife. So you you start in a flashback. Um, to Russell Tovey watching the telly, there is a woman um, basically um, appealing for her missing sister and a tearful kind of press conference. As you'd imagine, Russell Tovey is watching and he's got a drink in his hand. And as she speaks, some he has some kind of revelation. He opens his hand and he drops a load of pills on the table. He was clearly just about to take an overdose. This is not a spoiler. This is right there in the opening scenes. You then end up in the present day and Russell Tovey is in a very nice house covered in pictures and pictures and pictures of the same woman, which isn't at all weird. And the op- there's a knock at the front door and there is only what I can be described as Ian Beale in his homeless phase slash Fagin stood at the front door. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the kind of setup. And this guy is basically, I, it, it looks like he's in weird costume. Yeah. It's literally Fagin. It's like, oh, you know, can I have some more, please, sir? Um, and but this is Bertie Carvel. Now, Bertie Carvel is better known to me as Simon in Dr. Foster. But Bertie is actually an incredibly successful theatre, as Boyd would say, actor. He's won <laughs> Olivier Awards. He's been in huge, like, proper dramatic plays. He has a very rich, incredible career. Um, but there's something, like, weirdly pantomime about him when he stood at the door. And essentially what is established very, very quickly by moving between these three time periods Um and this isn't a spoiler because it's the setup of the entire thing and they lay it all out there for you, is that something dead bad happened. Somebody, you're led to believe the girl is buried, the girl who um, was in the initial press conference is buried in some woods. They're going to be doing a new development. They're going to dig it up. They're worried about the body being found. And shocker, Russell Tovey has married the sister of the missing girl. And this is all laid on a plate for you within the first seven minutes, I think, of the show. <laughs> so in terms of, let's just talk about the cast. So Tovey, you know, Tovey is amazing and genuine and heartfelt in whatever he is, but I don't feel like he has the greatest material here. Bertie Carvel is an incredible actor, but there is a very much a pantomime OTT um 
thing going on with his character. He's the guy who helped him do whatever the dead bad thing was that, you know, night all those years ago. The two women in this, Amrita um, Acharya plays his wife, Holly. She's brilliant. I have to say there's a scene which shows when they first met um, and they're on this date. And I think she is actually really incredible in that scene. Again, I'm not convinced she has the best material to play with throughout this. There's an incredible scene where she comes home and finds her husband and this this weird um, Fagin character in her house. <laughs> while it's raining and they all stand there in silence and if that was me and I'd come home and my husband was in there with some guy I'd never seen who looked like Fagin I'd be like what the fuck's going on but she just kind of goes okay and then they all stand and look at each other and then there's the whole thing it doesn't feel authentic or real or in any way naturalistic um I don't know if it's meant to but it definitely doesn't and then you meet her sister, Jackie, is played by Simone and Ashley, and you meet her through flashback, and she's incredibly compelling and magnetic. So these kind of four people who form the, the core of it are kind of independently kind of great actors, and but there is something odd about this show, and I don't know if it's because of the tone they're trying to capture. It's kind of meant to be suspense, but there's also this big supernatural element to it. Um, which is odd because you initially think it's going to be a straight thriller about uh, Diddy Killer and if so, why and why she buried in the woods. That's what you think it is. Then there's this whole supernatural bit, but it's very awkward in places. It's shot in a really um, kind of interesting way. It's very bleak, quite um, lots of blues and black, and it's very subdued. And I and I can get the tone they're going through. But something about it doesn't quite hang together. And I was interested in how it was shot and how it had been directed, which seemed very deliberate. And it was directed by Niall McCormick. Um, and I was going kind of through his his credits. And the thing I, I recognise most in what he's done before is The Victim with Kelly MacDonald, which we all really liked. And I think is a much more successful treatment of this kind of um, suspense and thriller and crime-based drama than this is. There is something for me that is just off with the tone and it's the way, it's the visual tone, it's some of the dialogue, um, it's the way the characters interact together, the way some of the story is told. Um, I don't mind the kind of flashing back between the timeframes and, and, and revealing bits of information that you're essentially being painted the entire picture. And I can see why it's four parts and I can see why they're consecutive nights. But something about this just doesn't work for me. And it does, and I hate to say this, but it does feel a little bit ITV not at its best is what I'd say. And there's nothing particularly innovative or exciting about the way it's told. It feels weirdly like a really traditional kind of show like this, um, which just happens to have incredible talent in it and incredible actors in it, um, which may come up again on this podcast, but there is this sense of there is all this talent in the room, but the, the material lets them down, the direction lets them down, and it just didn't hang 
together for me. And it didn't even have, you know, sometimes I like it if it's pulpy and if it's deliberately leaning into that stuff, then that often works for me. But I didn't sense that either. I just thought the tone was off. The chemistry was off between the characters. Some individual moments of great performance, but I didn't kind of see that gel together on screen. The story, when it picks up the supernatural bit, just I was like... I've got enough with the the dead body in the woods. I don't need the fucking ghost as well. Like it, 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 it didn't work for me as a as a kind of cohesive, cogent piece of telly. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I, I think um, it is very. Um, it's trying to do a lot of things. I mean, that is absolutely true. So on one on one on one, I think it's a, trying to be a Hitchcockian thriller. Um, yeah, I think I think there's a kind of. You know, um, there's an intensity to it that reminds me of, you know, that kind of Hitchcockian um, style, um, both in terms of the direction, the visuals. There's like, kind of, there's a lot, there's a lot of kind of glowing green, and you know, there's one that there's one scene at the beginning of episode two where Bertie Carvel's character is talking to Russell Tovey's character, and they're bathed in like red. It's 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 trying for a kind of heightened. I think it's trying to be a heightened, not naturalistic at all um, story. I mean, there are. This is a story that. That does, as we use the phrase, stretch credulity, because not only have you got um, uh, Russell Tovey's character, Nathan, marrying the sister of the dead girl whose death he was clearly involved in in some way, but part of the whole mystery is is, to what, is how was he involved. So he marries her. There's also the fact that the cop, played by Nina Toussaint-Wyatt, is the best friend mm. of the girl, the sister of the girl who died, which also, also is a bold move, I think, to have that element to it. She's not only investigating this crime, she's also the best mate of the person at the centre of this crime. Um, there's all of that going on. And I do think there is a very in, a definite clash in style. So I think Russell is doing a brilliantly naturalistic job. I think he's doing a very focused, intense version of this character who is like dealing with the trauma of whatever he did um, all those years ago, ten years previously, and I think he, that 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 worked for me very well. Obviously, I'm biased. Then you've got Bertie Carville doing a very cartoony, um, over the top, as you say. You're this in the guy with the long hair, the bedraggled long hair. But I think the the only defense that I think the character is supposed to be someone who's created his own persona. He sees himself as this this freaky guy who's going to tell us all about the truth of ghosts, basically. He thinks ghosts... He, he, his job is like a supernatural expert who's going to prove that ghosts exist, which is in itself, yeah, a kind of bold move and a bold character to have. And I, I liked the kind of is it or isn't it supernatural thing going on, which particularly comes out more in episodes two and three, where there are literally bumps in the night in their big lavish mansion house they live in. Um, and, is, you know, is or isn't there... Is there, is or isn't there the thing going on in this story where there is actually, you're actually supposed to believe there is a ghost occurring in this story? I think it was interesting. I think I watched the whole thing. Obviously, I've have I have um, hosted events about the like launches of the show, and I've interviewed everyone involved, and it all reaches a big climax in episode four. And actually, episode four is the best episode, and it all and, and the tensions ratcheted up, and it all comes together. And I think that is that is the kind of triumph of the series is that final episode, but. I do recognise it is flawed. It is a lot trying to achieve a lot, perhaps too much. But I think people, I think people will enjoy it. I think people will will find it an interesting kind of gripping story. Why do you think? But my thing is right. So you've got both mm. of them involved in the the exactly what you said. What happened to her? What what was both of their involvements? Which is really the yeah. thing that keeps you watching as they peel back the layers, yeah. peel back the layers. So why then do you need a ghost? 
I suppose it's why it's because then he's yeah. I mean, it just so happens that the guy who may or may not have been involved in burying her in the woods oh he definitely was involved in burying her in the woods he also happens to be a ghost guy do you know what I mean that yeah. bit just felt yeah. like why are you a ghost yeah. guy I, I think the answer I think the answer to that is that Neil Cross is really interested in ghosts mm. I oh. think that's the simple okay. answer yeah he's like <laughs> yeah I mean, you know but it is yeah I, I think I think I probably would agree that we didn't we don't need that bit element of it um, but he's created the, the Bob character played by Bertie Carville is this completely bonkers, let's face it, um, visually. His voice, he's got a really weird voice. But of course, remember Bertie Carville did play, Bertie Carville played that really weird character in Phelps' yes, version of Impaled. Yeah. And it's similar. I think they're very similar. He lo- he does like, as he's said in, when I've interviewed him, he likes the challenge of a really freaky per- persona that he has to completely change what he is. Because the Dr. Foster character yeah. was probably the most real, yes. you know, um, uh, thing that we've seen but, him do. But yeah, so th- th- it's just that kind of I thing. Thought, I think what your point you make is interesting, though, which is the clash of the clash mm. of styles, right? Because he is especially very noticeable in that first scene when when he and Russell Tovey come face to face because you do have Russell being a, a genuinely believable, conflicted guy who's been reminded of the worst thing that he's ever done slash has ever happened to him. Yeah. And then literally the camera pans around and you've got Fagin giving it all. Oh, aren't you going to invite me in then? Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's undeniable. God. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of moving parts here and not all of them, shall we say, work together. Um, I, Bertie Cavill was, when he came in, I was just like, what is happening at this point? Like, <laughs> it feels like I'd stepped into some sort of panto. And it's a shame because I really, really like Neil Cross. Obviously, I'm a massive fan of Luther. I really enjoyed Hard Sun. I like the fixer back in the day. That's a banshee to come at some point. Um, and I've also read some of his novels, uh, not this one, but I have read, uh, I mean, he wrote Luther the Calling, which was the prequel novel to the first series of Luther, which was a really sort of gripping crime novel, as you might expect. But, you know, so I don't know how this novel was particularly received, but it can be said I was a little disappointed. I was um, very pleased to see Russell Tovey sporting a Last Exit to Nowhere Blade Runner Unicorn Origami <laughs> t-shirt, though, in this. Oh. So I twigged that. Yeah, because he's supposed to be the... Co- yeah, he's supposed to be like a, almost like a, a, a nerdy skater yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. It's when a great he's t-shirt. ten years it's a great younger. Yeah. It's a yeah, yeah. thing. Um, but uh, the thing with this though is that the, at the end of the first episode, I was like, "Oh god, that wasn't very good." And yet, I kind of want to know what happens. So I'm in a similar situation to what I was with Roadkill, where I was like, "There are only four of these. I think I might watch them all because I want to know where it goes." That said, I kind of regretted it with Roadkill because that is all over the place. And I will say that that does not necessarily get better as it goes along. It becomes Becomes less focused and more chaotic, and the jazz score becomes more mind-blowing oh in a bad way. But I'm digressing. So I may watch the rest of the sister to find out what happens. Though I will probably be playing on my phone at the same time. Not watching Queeby. <laughs> Not watching Queeby. No. Uh, but that is the sister, and it debuts on ITV on Monday, October the 26th, today at 9 p.m. Next up this week is. The Undoing, a miniseries from David E. Kelly based on the novel You Should Have Known by Jean Hanf Korolitz. And it has an all-star cast featuring Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman, not to mention the West Wing's Janelle Maloney. Kidman plays a therapist living with her husband, who's an oncologist in New York, only for her fairy tale life to be turned on its head by a missing husband, a dead body, and, let's face it, a strange woman putting her lady garden on display. But... <laughs> 
gratuitous genitalia aside, <laughs> was this show your undoing, Boyd? Well, what a show this is. So this is like, you know, oozing with talent and class. You know, you've got you've got David E. Kelly, who, who worked with, obviously, Nicole Kidman on Big Little Lies. Um, he's, he's written it he's, and they've produced it together. You've got Nick Olden Hugh. You've got Edgar Ramirez as the detective. Um, Sophie Grabol pops up at one point. Donald Sutherland mm. is her dad. You know, I, I fucking love Donald Sutherland. Uh, Noma Dumaswaini, who is who I love, who's brilliant. She was in the um, Harry Potter play in the West End, and she's great as a lawyer. Pops up, I think, from episode two onwards, right, I think. Um, and directed by Susan Beer, who did, you know, The Night Manager and brilliant, brilliant film director. Um, huge amount of quality, prestige talent. It feels like this is an elite, and it's, you know, it's kind of set in the hoi polloi of New York. They live in this lavish Manhattan apartment. She's got a wardrobe the size of everyone else's flat. Um, and it's ooh, and it's got this whole kind of, like, quality of... It reminded me, you know what it reminded me of? The way it's shot in a kind of, like, she uses kind of diffused light, and there's, there's a lot of, like... It's almost like soft focus. It's like a 90s points. erotic like thriller. It's not- right. <laughs> Thank you for ruining my. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It is shot like sorry. a night is erotic thriller. <laughs> it is though. You're right. It's basic instinct. You know. It's and it's got a kind of, it's got a kind of weird over the top quality to it. As you say, the scene where so she meets the two the, the two mothers whose kids both kids go to the same um, school in New York, and the one she's walking around naked in the dressing room scene, standing in front of Nicole Kidman. Fully unclothed, as you say, full frontal. It's a bold move and a bold shot, and it's very amusingly directed. I thought, where literally you've got Nicole Kidman's um, point of view staring up at this naked woman towering over her, and and it's kind of like it's completely fucking ridiculous. Basically, the crux of it, the main, the central mystery is this woman is is. Is killed. That's the very opening scene. Is her son finding this woman killed? Um, and then we it flashes back in classic everything. <laughs> every drama does this style. Two days previously, I think, to when Nicole Kidman meets the, the this woman who's the victim, and they're both mothers at the same school. They've got kids at the same school, and at the same time. Um, Hugh Grant's character, the husband, mysteriously disappears, and the whole thing is: is there a connection between these events? Um, it, 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 dark secrets beneath super privileged rich white people is the kind of theory of it. But whereas Big Little Lies kind of did interrogate, didn't it? Um, rather brilliantly, certainly in the first season. I mean, I actually really, really like the second season as well, mm, despite all the controversy. But it absolutely interrogated class and race and wealth and privilege and all those things. It was kind of about that. It was very much, you know, for, for the forefront of that. And at the same time, it was this incredibly compelling, gripping mystery. Who who died? How had they died? You know, who was involved? This is like a who done it. So you've got that... It, who done it element with and then it becomes a courtroom drama halfway through so i've watched the all five episodes we were sent they haven't sent us the sixth with the reveal of what the fuck's going on then it turns into a courtroom drama with classic like over the top courtroom drama tropes to use that word that annoys me um of object and all of that it is fucking preposterous but and yet (laughs) exactly as you said about you've got to carry on watching it like you're going to carry on watching the not particularly good um David Hare drama that we reviewed last week. <laughs> I, I, I did carry on watching. I didn't I didn't watch all five episodes that we sent out of the shit because I thought I hadn't needed to. I because I wanted yeah. to. And I really want to know how it all ties up. And it is fucking ridiculous. It's 
ends up being weirdly cheesy, as we we're saying. It is got that nineties erotic thriller thing going on. Like I can only imagine Susan B is doing deliberately because it can't be an accident the way it's filmed and the way it's made. You've got some brilliant, like Donald Sutherland, the scenes with her with um, Nicole Kidman and her dad, who is phenomenal, over the top, quite camp, like always sitting there in the, looking at paintings, this lavish paintings. Every scene is in is sitting in this place just staring at vast paintings being over the top of melodramatic and very donald sutherland um numa dumaswani has a brilliant time as this lawyer who keeps saying i'm not funny she keeps saying it like multiple times in the thing because everyone accuses her of jokes she's like no i don't do jokes i'm not funny everything is very simplistic um surface there's no depth to it whatsoever but i am gonna ca- i've carried on watching it and i will definitely watch the episode to find out what, what happens but i mean all this talent involved, they really should have done something, I don't know, slightly more, you know, slightly deeper, but aiming high. I mean, it doesn't, it's just a kind of, it's got a veneer of quality, but it is absolute nonsense. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything Bonnie just said. I, uh, I watched three episodes of this. And I found myself hate watching it, which I hate, which I hate doing. I hate it. We talked about this last week with Emily in Paris, and I hate it when there is so much amazing TV to watch. There is something compelling about it. It does a very good cliffhanger, I have to say. Um, uh, but it is exactly what Boyd says, which is you have individual. Again, we have individually all these things and all these people who have amazing experience and amazing prestige. Kidman, you know, you've got um, Hugh Grant and you're going, oh, very English scandal, Hugh Hugh Grant. That's the kind of, you know, quality of of performance we're going to see. You've got um, uh, Noah Duke as the son. And that's just the three, that's just the immediate family. When Donald Sutherland walks on screen, it's like 24 karat gold. And David E. Kelly, exec producing, and Suzanne Beer. And I was really interested in how it was shot and the cinematography. The DOP was Anthony um, Dodd Mantle, who did Slumdog Millionaire and 28 Days Later, and hasn't traditionally done TV, did two episodes of Wallinder. But this, these are incredibly talented filmmakers and actors, and yet this absolutely does not work. The way it's shot drove me crazy. So like Boyd says, New York is um, shot in this very kind of choppy, frenetic way, but with a haze. Some of the shots feel very old school to me. There are weird zooms. There are a lot of eyeball zooms when people are panicking or thinking or worrying. (laughs) There is... um, Really weird shots um, that I just don't understand. Really weird wides that I don't know what they're doing there. There's a whip pan, which I don't think I've seen since, like, 1997. There's this whip pan at a party. And I was like, what did I just see? It just, it doesn't feel sophisticated, weirdly. And I thought, well, maybe it is trying to riff on 90s thrillers to get that tone going because of this mystery at the heart of it. But it's contemporary, so it just doesn't quite track. So I don't get how the filmmaking choices kind of support the story, I suppose. And then when it comes to the story, I really struggled to believe Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman as a, as a couple and Noah Jupe as their son. When they're in the kitchen together and they're walking to school together and all of these things, I just did not buy it at all. I didn't get any sense of any chemistry or any connection. Um I mean, and this is like, this was a problem all the way through. And I think it's really interesting. You know, Nicole Kidman's clearly drawn to 
projects like these and, and women with a certain amount of turmoil stuck in a certain type of crisis and and the kind of um confines and the the downsides i suppose of privilege as well as the benefits of it but it does do it a lot less successfully than something like Big Little Lies or, or so many other things. So she just so happens that she's dead rich and she's got a massive house and her son goes to this massive academy that costs 50 grand a year to send him to. Um, and then the central mystery at the heart of it is really not compelling enough. I watched three and yet compelling enough to make you still keep watching it. This is the internal, infernal struggle I have with this show. Is I'm, I keep watching it, but it, it just doesn't feel good enough to warrant our attention at the same time. Um, so, I mean, I, I am absolutely, clearly going to watch all six. Um, but it's fair to say I found it quite disappointing. And uh, to your point, James, about the gratuity... <laughs> It is obviously the DOP's man, but it's directed by a woman. Um, the full the full frontal nudity, there's a whole thing about breasts in the first episode. Uh, before the full frontal nudity, yeah. you then get the full frontal nudity, which is meant to be casual, but is anything but. The woman involved has a body unlike a woman I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also the violence is gratuitous because there's a couple mm. of shots um, of the body, which I which I found incredibly shocking. So at the heart of it, you also have these moments, which again, just seem quite jarring with everything else. I just don't think this again really hangs together for me. No. And what about the, uh, didn't you find the uh, the, ti- the title suits with the theme tune of Dream a Little Dream? How weird was so, that? Completely. Like... Completely didn't match the tone of the show. So I, no. I put it on and my boyfriend was like, oh God, there's a dream a little. And it's all these lovely yeah. shots. I mean, I didn't see any relationship between that at all. No. Which I think might be sung by Nicole Kidman. I was trying to fi- work, find out, but there's no trace of it. But it sounds like her singing that song. I'm not, uh, uh, maybe it isn't, but yeah, it's fucking weird. That's so weird. It seems completely for another show entirely. Yeah, tone, I mean, tonally, there's no. Yeah. James. I mean, yeah, I don't even know what else I can add to this. It feels like, a, a, it feels like one of those mid-90s thrillers that would have gone largely unnoticed at the cinema despite having good people in it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just, mm. It has that that feel about it. And sliver. Yeah, exactly. It's a sliver. sliver. And somehow, somehow it's been stretched into the sort of six-part David E. Kelly show, which I had such high hopes for, you know, you know, having seen Big Little Lies, which is fantastic and incredibly high production values, just beautifully executed, but also dramatically so powerful. And this is, you know, it's really slow. It's kind of scattershot and really quite uninteresting a lot of the time, except you still kind of want to know what's happening. Um, the nudity really did kind of like floor me. It's like there's some very aggressive breastfeeding in the first episode, which is clearly quite pointed. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just, it, it's not great, is it? Like it's, it's I think more... It's not that it's terrible. It's it's very disappointing mm. for who's involved, yeah. both in front of and behind the camera, and it just feels quite average. It, it, there is something absolutely intriguing about watching Hugh Grant doing this role, though. I mean, I I, I kind of agree with Terry, but at, at the same time, like it's very rare that you see Hugh Grant has to do a lot. Like I think one of my favorite things that I enjoyed most of it was watching Hugh Grant doing stuff you just never get to see him do. I mean, he is 
in quote heavy quotes stretched, you know, to doing so. Whether it goes, whether it's from trying to make men. I agree with you. It's not the the family is not a convincing family. But he, right early on, he's like, "Oh, shall I come and join you in the shower?" <laughs> oh, oh, no. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my no. God. I remember that. I that was oh my god! And the but- sex scene that I was just like, <laughs> yeah. because he. Also, I mean, they're two beautiful people. Don't get me wrong, but I, yeah. I, you know, if you've ever heard Hugh Grant speak about like, you know, things he finds awkward, you just know he finds that. Yeah. Filming yeah. that scene. I'm exactly. I'm amazed that he agreed to do it, to be honest. Because it's like, he doesn't, he, it's all the stuff that he always says, oh, no, I can't do that. But he has to do it all in this fucking show. Yeah. Everything. And uh, does, without spoiling it. There's the whole it. bit where he's pretending to be the dad because he's acting. But yeah. he's like, he's talking to his son. <laughs> and I'm, I just, I'm, I'm like, I'm looking in his eyes and I'm sure he's dying inside. Because, <laughs> because he, it's almost like he's like, oh, God, do I have to pretend to be his dad? Oh, yeah, that's what I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> oh god well oh, the undoing dear. comes to sky atlantic on monday october the 26th today at 9 p.m the same as the sister right lastly this week we have truth seekers uh as you will have heard from the man himself last week this is nick Frost's new show and reunites him with simon Pegg to an extent uh as well as starring malcolm mcdowell and samson Kao, and sees frost as a cable repair guy with a sideline in tracking down the paranormal the truth is out there, it seems, but the question, Terry, is it in here? No. <laughs> oh, God, I hate to be a downer this week. I really hate to be a downer this week, but I um, I did not enjoy this. Um, and I'm going to once again say this has incredible people involved. I feel like we're a stuck, stuck record, but this comes from the fingers and the brains of Nat Saunders, James Serafinowicz, Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, brilliant, funny men. And in front of the camera, you have some of the aforementioned, um, but also Susan Wakoma, who is incredible as chewing in as chewing gum, <laughs> who, is in, who is incredible in chewing gum. Samson Ko, who I'm obsessed with, um, it plays Elton. He plays the sidekick. As you say, Malcolm McDowell, Emma Darcy, Julian Barrett turns up. Like this is stellar, stellar British writing and um, acting, comedy acting, I suppose is what I'll say. What this suffers from, for my money, is this kind of mashup of genres they're going for, right? Which is it's trying to be a kind of supernatural comedy, drama, thriller, horror. I mean, I think all of um, the above. And, you know, these kind of genre comedies, it's not like they're new to any of these men whether it's World's End, Shaun of the Dead, you know, these are this is not unfamiliar territory in terms of trying to um, cross those genre boundaries and create something new and, and really kind of not be pigeonholed in that way. But for me, this, um, this kind of isn't funny and isn't scary. And so it doesn't really work on either of those and it doesn't work dramatically. Um, as you say, Nick Frost is essentially a, a, a wireless service repairman, but also at the same time is an amateur paranormal investigator. He's got a little crew. Um, they travel around the country, which is, gives it this kind of small British travelogy feel to it. Um, I think from what I've seen, it's kind of an epi- a case per week is the is the kind of rough structure. They're investigating ghost sightings across the UK. They then essentially put them up on the internet. Um, and Kayo, we should say, plays his sidekick, his kind of new assistant. They, I will say, 
have some chemistry at moments. And KO has incredible chemistry with Susan Wakoma, who plays his sister. So they're kind of the high um, high notes, I suppose, uh, for me, were those scenes. But as a piece of half hour, funny, scary, quirky British drama, whatever we want to call it, um, I, I just didn't think it was up to what these incredible group of people have, have so often, so successfully pulled off before i i didn't feel like the the comedy was as good as we'd seen previously the writing um and you know the i didn't feel any substance necessarily to any of the characters you have a thing with nick frost where he's widow and i none of it really for me had any substance or or felt kind of real or added much to it from a dramatic perspective and then because i didn't feel like it had the other elements it just I found it fell really flat for me. I'm sorry. Just to reveal, we uh, we do sometimes we talk about the shows we're going to talk about in in our WhatsApp group, and uh, I I was genuinely surprised. You expressed quite clearly last night in the WhatsApp group you were not you did not like this show, and I was I really like I genuinely liked it. So I was I was kind of taken aback to some extent by that. I guess I first of all I did I've watched the whole thing. So and it does it. So it starts out as you're right as a kind of case of the week thing. Um, which I enjoyed, and I think it's got a kind of almost like a Doctor Who vibe going on in a way, like where it's um, and although Doctor Who is essentially a children's show, it's because it's kind of like a a more adult in tone, but a kind of supernatural case of the week investigated by um, these characters, as you say. I think Nick Frost and Samson K are, are great together. Um, Simon Pegg pops up as, as as their boss in the most ludicrous wig, who has a very funny little kind of appearance every week weekly appearance if you like then halfway through interestingly it turns into something different kind of because then they go to this convention and um susan mccomb is brilliant in this episode by the way and they meet the character played by julian barrett who's this kind of like um celebrity expert on the supernatural funny enough a bit not a million miles away from bertie carvel's character it's all it's, it's, it's there's a lot of connections there's a lot of similarities this week because as you say there's a my, my god a massive amount of talent in this show but i this worked for me and i really like i thought actually and it, it becomes much more emotionally involving in the last half of the series so these are eight kind of roughly 30 minute episodes but it's not not sitcommy at all. It's more dramatic than I was expecting. Um, it's not, you know, it's not out and out. There's, there are broad comedic elements, mostly in the Simon Pegg character, actually. But then uh, halfway through, it becomes this slightly different thing where, where, and it becomes m- m- more like one arc story arc involving Julian Batscat, and he is great, very, very well cast in this role. And how they all, and there are more emotional strands to it that play out through the last half of the series, which I thought worked really well. And I kind of did buy, even though it's, I mean, it's, it's completely, it, it, I did buy that Nick Frost's character has his YouTube channel where he's investigating these supernatural phenomena in the way that he does. I thought I love Malcolm McDowell as his dad, who kind of just pops up almost like a ghost. Um, and you're not sure whether it actually, it could, you feel like it could be one of those characters who only Nick Frost's can, character can see. He might not even be real because he's so, he just kind of arrives suddenly at various moments in like almost like a kind of jump scare moment. And he's great. In it and has a great time um, as this kind of eccentric father figure. I just enjoyed it. I absolutely did enjoy it. I think we, I think it's funny when it needs to be funny. I think it's got it's borderline. It's quite scary. I mean, nothing scares me really. I'm quite a horror fan, but it kind of has horror moments 
you know, like inspired by stuff like the Exorcist system most that I think are, are work really well. And then it becomes a bit clockwork orangey in the second half. And I think the Malcolm McDowell connection is really interesting. I liked its ambition. I think it's really well filmed. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. So I was really disappointed that Terry clearly <laughs> fucking didn't like it. I must have been. I'm probably team Terry on this one. I, I, I did not love it. I wasn't quite sure what it was going for, to be honest, because it inhabits this slightly weird tonal center ground mm. between being a comedy and being dramatic show like the x-files then the x-files does this perfectly in that it is generally a dra dramatic supernatural show which isn't always scary but it's always thrilling and exciting and they occasionally have you know darren morgan type episodes where it's full-on comedy genuinely funny um but they kind of know what they are and this is neither one nor the other like the jokes are very broad and did not amuse me in the slightest um but equally it's not scary and it's not thrilling and it felt like the plot suddenly early on is quite incidental and while it's always fun spending time with nick frost and indeed malcolm mcdowell and simon Pegg, you know i just i couldn't couldn't bring myself to care like what was happening and yeah i totally get what you're saying that i didn't get that far but i did read that it does turn into more of an art based thing towards the end but i just I, yeah i don't i'm pretty certain i'm not going to stick it out long enough to find out how that pans out but Boyd, if people do want to kind of, if if they're not immediately loving it and they want to kind of hit more what you're talking about, when does it kind of hit that stride? When would you recommend people episode watch to four, episode I'd say. four? Watch to episode yeah. four. Okay. I did not quite make it to episode four, so maybe that is why. But uh, the truth is not out there. Well, it may be out there, but it's not in here for me. Uh, but this lands on Amazon Prime on the 30th of October, on the Friday. Right, also out this week, of course, is... Disney Plus is The Mandalorian Season 2, which also lands on Friday, October the 30th, except we haven't seen it because there are being secret squirrels about the screeners of The Mandalorian, and we're only going to get to see it the day before it airs. So we will get to talk about that next week. Uh, in the meantime, our pick of the week is, of course, The Mandalorian, because everything else on this week was <laughs> shit. <laughs> so what we suggest this week is you either watch The Mandalorian or you go outside and play in the sunshine. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what else is on this week? Uh, the new series of This Is Us arrives on Amazon on Wednesday the 28th. That'll be exciting for a great number of people, I am sure. What else is out, Boyd? There's a show called Max, which um, which is O.T. Folk Bentley of The Handmaid's Tale. He has created and stars in the show called Max with three X's that was originally supposed to air back in like February, March. And then they, and I think it actually did arrive on E4. And then they were like, no, they took it off again because they wanted to give it a chance. So it's back. It's now on Channel 4 on Thursday. And he plays a washed up ex-boy band. It's a comedy. A washed up ex-boy band star trying to revive his career. And um, it's it's got Christopher Maloney from um, from Oz, mm. the prison drama Oz. Do you remember him? <gasps> As the Yes. Yes. <laughs> of course. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, um, he pops up in it amazingly as this old, this ludicrous rock manager figure, and it is interesting and funny and different. Yeah, Max, you'll hate it, James. Okay. Terry might quite like it. Yeah, wow. Uh, that's I think okay. the main thing. Okay, it's so st still sticking with the Mandalorian. Um, fine. Before we go, let's have a quick banshee, but let's keep it very quick because we are running long yet again this week. Uh, who would like to go first? I'll go. So I once mentioned I was watching this, but I want to banshee it properly, but I'll do it dead fast, which is um, The Scott Squad, which is on BBC. I think there's four episodes currently. I don't know why I'm shouting. Um, I think there's four. <laughs> I just realised I was like, ah! Uh, 
there's four episodes currently on um, BBC iPlayer. It comes from the brain of Joe Hollate. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. Sorry, Joe, you follow me on Twitter, so bollock me if I got that wrong. But um, it's essentially a spoof comedy mockumentary style look um, at a police force called the Unified Scottish Police Force and it follows them doing traffic stops like doing briefings um, there's detectives um, you know full big commissioners commissioners chief commissioners and it is very funny there are also clips um, on there if you want to get a taste of it first um, I love this um, somebody brought this to my attention on Twitter a while ago um, and I think it's absolutely bloody hilarious there are only four episodes on um, iPlayer at the moment um, uh, but they are kind of BBC seems to be putting lots of big um, archive things all in one go on iPlayer so maybe they will put more up Okay, dokie. Uh, I'm, I'm going to very, very quickly do one, but it's not a proper Banshee, really. Well, it is a proper Banshee, but it's kind of a cheat because I've mentioned it before, but I did it before the Banshee segment was an official thing. So it's not on the spreadsheet officially, so I'm allowed to do it now. And that is Kindred the Embraced, which was a show that ran for eight episodes on Fox in 1996. Uh, and this was when this, I was going through a vampire phase at the time. I was reading a lot of vampire fiction stuff because, you know, young people. And... Um, this starred uh, C. Thomas Howell was in this. It had Jeff Cobra. Jeff Cobra, great B-movie actor, was in this as well. And it was based on the kind of role-playing books by Mark Reinhardt called Vampire the Masquerade. And the whole idea was it was set in San Francisco and there are vampire clans that all have very specific attributes and they run the city. And the prince of the city is a guy called Julian Luna, a Ventru vampire. And he was played by Mark Frankel, a.k.a. Leon the Pig Farmer. Uh, and he was really, he was the, the beating heart of this. Really enjoyed it. Was fascinated by the mythology of it, because it's drawn from this kind of rich role-playing game you'd expect it's quite detailed the world building's really really good um but yeah really like this only ran for eight episodes because uh mark frankel was killed in a motorcycle accident and that kind of put an end to the whole show i don't know whether the show history i don't know whether the show was cancelled before he died but it all happened around the same time so i don't know whether his, his death was the cause of it but certainly that would have made it very difficult to continue but um i enjoyed this for the eight episodes that existed in fact i have a dvd of those eight episodes lying around here somewhere and i seem to recall i read loads of weird vampire the masquerade spin-off fiction afterwards because i wanted more of the same but anyway kindred the embraced probably can't see it anywhere or you may be able to but i don't know where (laughs) 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 boy yeah um i'm i've done i haven't checked where mine's available i'm I'm banishing the show that russell tovey mentioned in my interview unless you cut it out um which is that which is possible of course But whether you have or not, looking, um, and I checked that I, 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 we haven't yet banished it. I checked on the spreadsheet. Was his absolutely brilliant, but slightly underwatched, or well, massively underwatched and undervalued um, series that was on HBO and Sky Atlantic here for two se- two seasons, um, 2014 and 15, and then there was a 90 minute feature length special in 2016 to kind of wrap it up although you could always go back to these characters and Russell says in that interview that he'd love to go back and this is the kind of show you feel they could revive it was an absolutely beautifully made and acted um, very freewheeling look at a, a bunch of gay guys living in San Francisco it had a kind of it was always compared to girls it was like the girls um, for gay men was like the, what it was compared to but actually the tone of it was kind of much more free form I think in a way less trying to be funny consistently all the way through but it is funny the characters are witty and charming and interesting Jonathan Groff was in it um, and Russell Tovey played a character who kind of who Jonathan Groff's character has an affair with even though really you kind of think um, Jonathan Groff is more into a character 
Play, Richie played by Raul Castillo and um, so it's got a kind of love triangle thing going on um, but just as a, just as the way it was shot it really captured what San Francisco is like as a place and the characters are really well formed and Andrew Haig um, directed um, the majority of the episodes brilliantly and if you like Andrew Haig's work um, you know directed episodes of the OA Weekend is film and 45 Years is film those films are brilliant and it's definitely got his way of almost like semi-documentary style approach which I think worked really well for the show so looking I th- I'm pretty sure you can get it as box sets on Sky as well okay thank you boys well that is it for this episode of the Pilot TV Podcast if you enjoyed the show then don't forget that we are quite literally powered by your five star reviews on Apple Podcasts so do drop another one in the meter uh, and if you enjoyed the West Wing thanks to our recommendations then please leave a second review for that as well uh, we are now as always available to you 24-7 on social media at James C. Dyer at Boyd Hilton and at Terry underscore White next week's show will see us able to review season two of The Mandalorian apologies for the delay on that one uh, we'll also very likely have had a chance to see the new series of The Crown as well so look forward to to that. Uh, in the meantime, though, I am going to settle in with the rest of Counterpart and really wonder what it would be like if my own badass alter ego were to cross over from Parallel Dimension and take over the show. Perhaps we'll find out next week. Pilot out. Mm-hmm.